Hey, everybody. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening and good night also. Uh, this is the Mind Virus Show, the Mind Virus Podcast. It is September 12th, 2022. You can find us on the web at mindvirus.show or on your favorite podcast aggregator like Spotify or whatever. Okay, today for the show, it's going to be just me, Jordan, Jordan Bruno. Bobby Flood is out enjoying the fall weather, doing whatever it is that he does uh, out in the wilderness, as he is so wont to do. Um, so today I'm flying solo. And I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. You'll have to weigh in and let me know what you think in the comments section on the website. Now, uh, we did have some comments last time that I want to bring up. Thank you for commenting. We had, uh, we'll go in, in reverse order here. Uh, Pepe Le Pew told us, now the, la the last show was Rules for Magic, episode 91. We got into Brandon Sanderson's Rules for Magic and we discussed kind of how <laughs> the, this matters to narrative and how it relates to some of the narrative that's being portrayed in the uh, news media in the modern world here. And it was kind of a fun show. I think it was it was pretty good discussion. Pepe Le Pew weighed in. He said, I find the very last five minutes or so of the show a great topic to discuss at a local level, meaning our local schools being invaded by woke ideology. I wonder if you can talk more about it by bringing in a guest with first-hand experiences, yada, yada, yada. Okay, uh, Pepe Le Pew, we're not doing that today. Thanks for your comment. <laughs> Kenny gave us a big, long exposition on Sanderson's Rules for Magic, which was really good. And if you want to read that, feel free to go have a look at it on the website. TBM. My wife and I are totally down for more esotericism and a deep dive into Harry Potter. Okay, you might enjoy today's episode. Uh, I Play the Radio gave us some quotes. Our overlords are stupid and not even fun to learn about. Or you can have your rights back when you comply. Thank you, I Play the Radio, for the t-shirt ideas. He gave a few more comments and uh, some scriptural references that you may want to check out on the website. And then I think we had some others comment on the Nothing Special episode. Uh, it was uh, Rulon here. He says, I tried looking for the quote about the NSA building that said something like they're coming here because of the large amounts of water, but I couldn't find it. Can you please share that? Bobby Flood, you're the one that brought that up. You need to figure that out and give Rulon uh, a source on that if you're listening. <laughs> okay. All right, I've been told that when I uh, speak, sometimes I sound pedantic. What does that even mean? Then the guy revised it and said, well, maybe robotic. So I don't know. You'll have to let me know how I'm doing here. This is not my first time recording a solo lecture or whatever, but it is going to be my first time putting it out mostly extemporaneously. So I'm speaking extemporaneously is what I mean here. I am going to, for the, 
for the most part, just go off of a few little notes that I have and just tell you what's coming stream of consciousness. So that'll be interesting. Uh, pedantic, though. The definition of pedantic is characterized by a narrow, often ostentatious, ostentatious concern for academic knowledge and formal rules. Or uh, pertaining to a pedant, characteristic of or resembling a pedant, ostenta ostentatious of learning. Or like a pedant, overly concerned with formal rules and trivial points of learning. I don't think this stuff is trivial, <laughs> but maybe I do sound pedantic. I don't know. We got to look up the word ostentatious, though, right? And so I've just uh, looked that up here on the web. Characterized by or given to ostentation, synonym, showy. Fond of or evincing ostentation, unduly conspicuous, pretentious, boastful, ostentation. Uh, the definitions on that. Making an ambitious display, unnecessary show, pretentious parade, usually in a detractive sense. Wow, now I'm, I hadn't looked up ostentatious or ostentation after that guy told me that I, was, uh, I sounded pedantic. Now I'm not sure what to think about that. Anyway, this is all extemporaneous, and uh, let's see. I'm going to look that up real quick. Now, extemporaneous, most of you know, is just off the cuff. But I'm looking it up in the etymology dictionary. That's always interesting to me to see where these words came from. This is clearly in a Latin root, and it's got X and temporal in it. And so I know that that already means out of the temporal or out of time. And so they're saying uh, it's from the Latin phrase extempore, offhand, in accordance with the needs of the moment, literally out of time. So I'm pretty close on that. So extemporaneous. That's what I'm going to be doing today is speaking extemporaneously. And again, I'd love to get your feedback if you like this or if you don't like it or you think it's good or bad or whatever. Uh, Bobby uh, fled town and told me I was on my own. And I tried uh, to get some people to get on the podcast with me. I didn't try super hard, but I got turned down and which maybe means something. <laughs> and then I uh, decided, you know, this might be a good chance to get into in more detail in sort of a pedantic way <laughs> or more a pedagogical, pedagogical way. Is that the way we would say it? I'm just looking that up in the etymology dictionary here. And it looks like I maybe don't want to say it that way, but it has of or pertaining to a teacher of children. <laughs> so that, that might be um, a useful way to look at it here. So really, the modern definition of pedagogy is uh, the art or profession of teaching, uh, preparatory training or instruction, or number three, an establishment for instructing youth, a college. So y yeah, this is more a pedagogy or ped pedagogic if I got that word right. I don't have Bobby here to correct my pronunciation. But yeah, I uh, this will be more of a, a lecture on account of it's just me. And I'm going to be speaking, based on my short notes, extemporaneously about cosmology. So I've threatened for a while that I was going to do something like this. And Bobby's absence gives me the opportunity to go ahead and take on this subject. 
I think it's really important because it's going to be helpful for some future esoteric discussions that we have where we get into breaking down some of the narrative stories that prevail well that uh that dominate really in our world some of these are fictional stories like we've talked about getting into harry potter and uh, the avengers series and so i think it's gonna be helpful for that future discussion and uh also i watched the movie thor love and thunder over the weekend and now i'm not sure when bobby brought this up on the podcast he said it was kind of boring I thought it was sort of mind-blowing. These guys are so intentional about their narrative and what what they put out there. And in most cases, the Avengers material in a big picture sense is an inversion of the uh the war between the gods of light and the gods of darkness, you know, the the hero's journey stuff. It's, it's sort of an inversion of some of these ancient archetypal forms. But in the movie Thor: Love and Thunder, they they switch that. It, it's not it's not quite an inversion. There's a lot of weird, messed up things in it, and I'm still getting my mind around it. But it is definitely right along these lines. It is uh, relevant to the subject of cosmology. What is the subject of cosmology? What does that mean? Cosmology. It means essentially the study of the cosmos. If we go again to the etymology dictionary, I love the etymology dictionary. I think it's important because it helps us understand the original intent of words, where they came from. A lot of a lot of our literature is older. It goes way back. Some of the most important ideas that we have in Western society go way back to uh, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, uh, all the way back to the Bible, and even all the way back to Egypt. So I think understanding the original intent and what the words mean is really significant. Well, anyway, cosmology, uh, according to the etymology dictionary, and I like the, uh, I've, I've linked to this before on the website. It's uh, etym online, E-T-Y-M online.com, I think is a really good etymology dictionary. It's easy to use. They update it regularly. And I mean, that is something we kind of have to worry about in the modern age where certain, <laughs> when you change the language and you change the people through the language, uh, that, that can be problematic when, uh, we change these definitions, but I think they're, they've been pretty consistent. And I like this one, uh, cosmology from the Greek co- cosmos and logia discourse. Cosmos of course means a lot of things it can mean the universe or the world. Uh, it comes from the Greek verb cosmeo, meaning to order or to organize. So really it's the thing that was organized or ordered. And the logia, the discourse, is the discussion of or the study of engaging in understanding of that thing, cosmology, geology, uh, typology. Um, what other ologies do we have? Psychology, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on and on there about ologies. So cosmology is an understanding of the cosmos. And a lot of a lot of people have different ideas of what you mean when you say cosmology. So I'm going to start off right here and point out that when I say cosmology, I'm talking about discussion of the thing that was ordered or organized. Not like in the physical sense necessarily, not in the universe 
the study of the universe and the and the heavenly bodies in the way that you would think about it if you went to a university and studied astronomy or physics or whatever. I mean, in the most basic sense, we're going to discuss the thing that was organized. And again, I'm speaking extemporaneously here uh, to ho- help give a big picture overview. I I hope that this is introductory. Some of you, my friends that listen to this podcast may find it repetitive. I don't know. I really don't know who all is out there listening. We, we think, I think from the stats that we've got, you know, 100 to 150 listeners at any given time. When we had Eric Mutsos on, we had a, a heck of a lot more than that because he has a bigger audience. I don't know how many of you are holdovers from that or who are friends or friends of friends or know me or Bobby or whatever. So there's a lot of context that matters. And so some of this may be basic and some of it may be interesting, may have some hidden gems or uh, things that if you've talked to me in the past, you may not have surmised that I, that, uh, I thought or understood or whatever. I don't know. And we'll see. You'll have to let me know what you think. But this is a, this is a big picture perhaps introductory overview of cosmology the way I see it. So this is Jordan Bruno's cosmology. (laughs) Not everybody sees it the same way. Not everybody looks at this stuff in the same way. And uh, I think that is uh, an important thing to understand. Um, So again, this is going to be a big picture overview. And I'm not sure who exactly... I'm speaking to, but my hope is to establish some solid footing from which to proceed and discuss in more detail what I would call the great narrative, the the narrative of our cosmos, of our existence, of our organization, what what was organized as pertaining to us, our our very inner essence, our beings, who we who we really are in the deepest sense. So if you're just tuning in and you don't know me or, or Bobby very well or understand <laughs> what we've been talking about the last couple of years relative to this this mind virus show, this, this may be an interesting starting point. And it may be a place where you think, hey, you know what? These guys are crazy. I'm really not interested. If you're not interested, that's great. I wish you well. And, you know, don't worry about it. Just go do your thing and don't, you don't need to listen to this stuff. If, if you're not, if, if you're here to be uh, critical or find fault, I would also say, look, this, this isn't a discussion for you. I want to share some things I think are important. This is, even though it's public, it's still private, right? It's like, uh, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm speaking for me telling my opinion. I'm not even speaking for, Bar- for Bobby Flood here. Uh, in fact, hopefully Bobby will listen to this and uh, it will bring us closer together on how he's understanding the way I'm seeing things. That would be great if he could uh, have a listen and maybe and maybe get a, a better window into what's going on in my mind and we can understand each other better as we begin to discuss discuss these narratives that we're going to be discussing in the future. And of course, as you know, on the podcast here, if, you, if you've been listening at all, we love to discuss human events, current events, historical events, because narrative matters to us and the, and the physical world in that the narratives that we 
uh, embrace, that we imbibe, that we uh, take into ourselves, they dominate us. They, they rule us. They affect our actions and how we interact with other people. And, and so narrative is very, very, very important. And whether you like it or not, you're always being influenced by narratives, by those that want to frame your world for you so that they can either get you to take actions that benefit them or maybe they have other altruistic motives. I don't know. But generally, it's sort of disingenuous. We, we are awash in marketing, whether it's political propaganda or pure corporate propaganda, whatever, uh, or marketing just for, from our friends down the street who just want to sell us something. It's always marketing. There's always a message. There's always a story involved about why we need to do something or get something or purchase something. That's, that's very, very much what dominates the world. And in the ancient world, the thing that I think dominated very much, and not just in a significant way, it really dominated the world, it was their outlook on how the cosmos worked, the story of the cosmos, and that, and most people in the ancient world, uh, differing from us in the modern world, they held a, an outlook that viewed their world, their cosmos, their, the thing they were caught up in as sacred. They, they viewed their lives as sacred and they looked at events in a way that we would sort of consider superstitious. Superstitious uh, coming from the Latin superstitio, I believe. Let's look that up. I've got this problem with making minor mistakes. Maybe that's really pedantic of me. Uh, from the French superstitious, uh, from Latin superstitiosus, prophetic, full of dread, the supernatural, uh, super above studio uh i believe is or superstar a to stand over or from above so the idea is that yeah it is it is from the nominative super studio and uh the past participle stem of superstar a i'm not going to put all these links i'm not going to put links to all of this stuff up on the website you can just go look up whatever words you want in the etymology dictionary or, or the regular dictionary, whatever. Uh, you're going to have to do some work on this one. But, uh, yeah, in the etymology dictionary, we're, we're talking with superstition. What we're talking about is something coming from above, something some, that there's some higher thing controlling as relates to something you do or perceive or or understand in your world. So superstition has gotten a negative connotation, but in the ancient world, the idea was that there were higher or more sacred origins or reasons for things happening than, than they understood. And so they involved the gods far more often in their, their daily lives. They viewed their lives as sacred, as, as relating to a greater thing than they could see. Hence, since we don't see these things in the modern world and we have found explanations, scientific, what we would call scientific explanations for a lot of things, we have made everything profane. Nothing in our world really has a sacred sense or a sacred origin. We've, we think we understand everything and so therefore the way we look at the world is in a very profane way. And that affects us that affects how we operate and what we do and what we think and who we actually are 
So again, narratives rule us and this is very, very important. Important. Okay, so I've told you that we're, we're looking for, I'm already off of my notes. I'm, I'm way off track here. I've already explained that I'm going to be speaking extemporaneously, trying to give a big picture, picture overview, and that this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm definitely not speaking for Bobby Flood and uh, definitely not for any uh, religious institution I might be a member of. That is right out. I am not speaking for anybody there. And even though I might mention people like Joseph Smith or Hugh Nibley, that doesn't mean I'm making any inference that what I'm saying here is accepted by uh, any institution. This is, this is all the opinion of Jordan Bruno, and that's it. And most importantly, disclaimer here, I reserve the right to repent, meaning change my mind or have a massive shift in my heart and mind. I hope, in fact, that God will give me more understanding that I can dramatically shift my understanding to a more correct view of what is going on. Of course, we've talked about on the show before the word repentance, which uh, is a terrible uh, devolution of the idea that came out of the Greek metanoia in the New Testament. Um, Jerome, in the 4th century, when he was writing the Latin Vulgate, uh, translating the Greek texts into Latin as commissioned by the, the Roman Church, he used the word repaenitentia instead of metanoia, the Greek metanoia, he used the Latin re paena tentia, which means re, to redo, paena, punish, and tentia, the process of. So it's, uh, that, that made it into French as repentance and into English as repentance. And what that means is to repunish yourself. It's the process, process of repunishing yourself, to pay penance, to, to do that over and over again. And of course, the Greek metanoia means uh, meta to transform or change, and noia the thoughts or the inner mind, the self. The uh, it's not it's to say it's to change your mind is a little simplistic. It really means to have a, a, a significant shift in your heart and mind and the way you're viewing the world and who you really are, which I hope will become more relevant as we discuss our conditions here in the fallen world. Our our condition, our our plight, what we're going through here. And uh, if you watched Thor, Love, and Thunder, I told you it wasn't the typical inversion. In fact, it was sort of a reversion. It was all messed. There was a lot of messed up stuff in there. And I want to talk about this with Bobby Flood. I'm not sure how much time we should allow to pass before we get into it. But in the, in the Thor, Love, and Thunder, this was symbolized by this fallen world was symbolized by what they called the shadow realm. And when they went into the shadow realm, they did not um, have any color. They, they, it was in black and white. Really, really interesting. Go watch Plato's Allegory of the Cave if you want to think about that. This is a, this is a heady subject, like you used to say, of certain things. This idea of cosmology requires us to expand our minds, to change and reorient our minds to greater, higher things, things that are beyond us, things that we cannot see. And if you remember in Ether, let me pull that up real quick. In Ether chapter 12, Moroni is giving an, an exposition of what faith is, which is really, really important because... This is where I think that we all go wrong. It's right at the concept of faith. It's the first principle. And it relates to Plato's allegory of the cave. And if you don't remember Plato's allegory of the cave, I'll just give you a really quick 
overview. The idea is Plato's teaching uh, and relating what Socrates had taught to a student. And he says, look, imagine yourself a prisoner in a cave. You're chained up against a wall in such a way that you can not move your head to the left or the right. You can only see the wall in front of you where there are the shadows being cast by a fire that is behind you. So you can't see the fire. You can only see the shadows on the wall and you can only hear the echoes of the, the, the shadows on the wall. Excuse me. You can only see the echoes. You can only see the shadows on the wall and the echoes are the things that you hear. You can hear the echoing of the, the movements and the sounds that are, uh, and the things that are being spoken going on behind you. Well, uh, you're chained there with a bunch of other prisoners and they all start commenting and begin to teach each other about the shadows on the wall. They explain what they see and they try to predict what's going to come next. And they kind of, that, that becomes their world. They give out awards for people that are better at predicting what's next and better at interpreting the shadows on the wall. And all this time, everybody there is just looking at the shadows on the wall and hearing the echoes of the sounds coming from behind them. Well, Plato then expands our view and he says, okay, so behind you, behind the, uh, the wall, at the top of the wall, there's a, an edge and behind that are, uh, there's a little track and behind the track is the fire. So there's raging fire back there, but there are people carrying objects and, um, the way it's depicted in, um, in visual form is that there's sort of a, a wall back there. They're not actually up on the ledge. They're sort of below the ledge. So you can't really see the people. You only see the objects that they're lifting up. You only see the, the things that they want you to see. You don't necessarily see the people that are doing the, this, this puppet show, the shadow puppet show on the wall. And the fire is creating the shadows and they're, they're creating the shadows by uh, putting objects in front of the fire. And they're also talking and making strange noises. And they also will bring animals in and lead them around and you hear the animals and stuff and maybe see the animals. Uh, I don't know how that is if they lift the animals up or whatever. It's, you, you can, again, I'll, I'll, I, I think I'll put a link to Plato's allegory, which I've done before making myself a note here, uh, that I'm going to, I'll put a link to a, a, a YouTube version of this on the website. So if you want to watch Plato's allegory, if you haven't ever watched it, go ahead and watch that. If you don't want to watch Plato's Allegory, another thing that you can do is watch the movie The Matrix. Uh, that's an interesting adaptation of Plato's Allegory. There's also um, the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio where they go, these people get into each other's dreams. And so you they go into a dream and then they can go into a dream within a dream or even a dream within a dream within a dream. So what they're dealing with here is what is reality? That's what's at issue in all these stories is what is the actual reality? We, we are somehow perceiving something different than the actual reality. And I really like Plato's cave for its concision, meaning it's short, and also for how they have one more aspect of this. They say, imagine that a prisoner breaks free and he then sees the what's going on behind the prisoners. He sees the fire and he sees the people creating the shadows, but then he sees a light in the distance and he goes around the corner and he sees this greater light and he goes out further up the cave until he enters into the uh, above ground world, out of the cave. 
and sees the light of the sun. And the world out there is amazing and so full of light and just so much more vast than this, this world of the cave where he'd been held prisoner. And so uh, Plato says, well, imagine yourself the prisoner that had been freed, sees the outside world and decides, I'm going to go back and tell my friends about this, this world uh, that's just a few steps away from us that we can't see. And, and he goes back into the cave and it takes a while for his eyes to adjust. And then he gropes his way back down to the fire and back down to his friends and sits down with the people who are chained to the wall looking at the, the shadows cast by the fire and tries to start telling them about the real world outside and they laugh at him and they, they don't want to hear it. And when he persists, they get, they get angry with him and they, some of them even want to kill him and, and get rid of him. They, they just don't want to talk about it. They're, they prefer the world that they behold in the form of the, the shadows cast upon the wall by the people behind them in the fire. So Plato's, Plato's allegory is really amazing because you have two different unseen worlds. You have the, the world caused by the fire and then you have the world outside of the cave. And that's really significant because the matrix doesn't have that. The matrix only has the world inside the matrix and the world outside of the matrix. And the world outside of the matrix is a war world. And it essentially is the, um, the it's, it's Plato's f- inside of the cave. It's the, it's the fire part where the, it's the, it's the people that are creating the shadows on the wall and the fire. That's the machine world that Neo is able to observe when he, exits the matrix. So these these are very significant ideas to keep in mind. Now, I'm really getting off track here from my notes, and I'm, I'm going to tie all of this together because I think it is of the utmost importance. Again, my opinion, if you're, if you're angry at what I'm saying or you don't like where I'm headed with this, please turn off this podcast. You're listening voluntarily. I am not trying to uh, hurt anybody's testimony or... <laughs> create problems or whatever. I'm looking for greater knowledge here. And for me, this is, this is the tip of the iceberg that has really made a huge difference in my life and my understanding of ancient writings and scriptural writings and even understanding the narratives that are going on in the world today. So, so I'm kind of far afield here, but uh, this is really significant, this idea that there are unseen things, unseen things that we need to grapple with. And those are expressed in allegories like Plato's Cave and The Matrix. Okay, so I'm 30 minutes into this. I'm already tangentizing all over the place. And what I want to talk about now that I've talked about some examples of unseen things and where we see this narrative manifest itself in our modern world, for example, in The Matrix or or the movie Inception, uh, let's get back to ether. Remember, we're talking about unseen things. I find this very, very significant because it says in chapter 12 of ether, verse 2, that ether was a prophet of the Lord, wherefore ether came forth in the days of Coriantumr and began to prophesy unto the people, for he could not be restrained because of the spirit of the Lord which was in him. For he did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance. Now, you guys all know what repentance means now that you've had the 30-minute, <clears throat> excuse me, Jordan Bruno introduction <laughs> setting up repentance. He, he, he wanted people to believe in God unto repentance. Now, it's not just to believe in God. It's to believe in God unto repentance. 
meaning a massive shift in their heart-mind, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled, wherefore whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. And it came to pass that Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people, which they did not believe because they saw them not. Okay, was that pedantic? Was that too robotic friend out there? Good friend? I like this guy that told me, called me pedantic. Uh, it had a little emotion, I hope. They didn't believe it because they saw them not. Now, when you think about faith, <clears throat> you guys, and I know I'm, I'm guessing most of the people that are listening to the podcast, that's, that's one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit more is I don't know where you guys are at. I really don't know. I know that I've had some friends chime in. I know some of the people that comment on the website. I don't know exactly where you're at. So I run a little bit of a risk going on and on and on about cosmology here because I don't know what kind of time and effort you may have taken to look into the narratives that we learn in the in our churches in our uh, colleges schools whatever I don't know exactly what kind of time and attention you've given that and how married you are yes I used the word married how married you are to your understanding of those things and I think that there are some significant shifts that we need to make in order to really see the original intent of the authors of the scripture. Now, who are the authors of scripture? In some cases, they are people who really shouldn't have written scripture. But in, in many cases, they are men or perhaps in some cases women, but usually men that had experiences with the other world, with the unseen world, like Ether. He prophesied, and by the way, prophesy in this case is probably related to the Greek prophetus in the sense that pro means to forespeak, not foretell, using uh, modern words here. So there's a different, you, you can prophesy and you can be telling the future, or you can prophesy and you can just be speaking out. Uh, let's look it up in the etymology dictionary. Prophecy coming from, uh, through French, from Latin, prophetia, and uh, Greek propheteia, Gift of interpreting the will of gods, meaning things spoken or written by a prophet. Uh, one who speaks for God or one who foretells an inspired teacher. These are modern definitions. In the Greeks, uh, the Greek word was used in the Septuagint for the Hebrew na, nab, N-A-B-J, soothsayer, inspired prophet. Okay, so I'm, I'm just telling you in the, in the oldest Greek, the pro there can mean, it can mean that they're telling something in the future, which is what, one way that we, probably the most common way we would look at prophecy, or it can mean simply that, th that they are speaking out. So in this case, it says that the people didn't believe Ether. He prophesied great and marvelous things unto the people, which they did not believe because they saw them not. Now, if Neo was in the Matrix telling people about the Matrix and the other world, he could be considered in the same position as Ether here because he might speak of those things, speak out, force, forcefully speak about those things, and they did not believe them or would not believe them because they saw them not. 
that is a, that is a possibility here, and I think I really do think that's what Ether chapter twelve verse five is talking about. Is this unseen reality? It's talked about in verse four, the better world, even the place at the right hand of God. That is the object of faith, besides Jesus himself, who is the unseen God <laughs> in the better world. So this is this is one of our big problems, is that we don't have faith. We don't know what it is. We don't talk about it. We don't teach it. We don't know what is beyond the veil. And we, we rarely give this any time or attention. Most of what we do, and again, I'm coming from a Utah Mormon background is the way I'm going to say that. Utah Mormon Republican background. The idea is that we have a checklist of things you need to do in order to demonstrate faith and and to be saved in the kingdom of God in the hereafter. But here, Ether's talking about something different. The people didn't believe it because they didn't see it. And then Moroni says, now I would speak somewhat concerning these things. What things? The things that he previously talked about, right? The things that Ether did prophesy that were great and marvelous things unto the people which they did not believe because they saw them not. Moroni would speak somewhat concerning these things. This is where we pick it up. We, again, I'm not speaking for any institutions or whatever, but my experience has been that it gets picked up at verse 6 in Ether chapter 12, and the people didn't believe them because they didn't see these things. And so Moroni says, well, I'd speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for. Remember verse 4, hope for a better world, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith. Okay. Things which are hoped for, which are not seen, wherefore dispute not because ye see not. For you, you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Well, what is faith? This is where we get to uh, talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Now, if you... If you... Um, have read lectures on faith... If you've read the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the, the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, you, what you have read, the current iteration of it, is that you have read the covenants or commandments portion of what Joseph Smith called the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine portion, if you can pick up an 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine portion of that was the, the, the set of lectures that Joseph Smith and his companions who were involved in the school of the prophets. It's what they wrote and titled Lectures on Faith. So the reason the Doctrine and Covenants is titled Doctrine and Covenants is because of the Lectures on Faith, which are no longer in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is a significant issue. Make of it what you would like. But uh, when Joseph Smith starts off talking about faith, faith in uh, Lectures on Faith, now, again, one of the reasons they were taken out was because some of the brethren, the general authorities of the church in the early 1920s, believed that there were contradictory statements, statements that contradicted with uh, section 130 of the current Doctrine and Covenants on the nature of the Godhead. I believe that's the crux of the issue. And later on, scholars have uh, apologetically attempted to explain that, well, Joseph Smith didn't really write them, and therefore um, we can go ahead and take those out. But we can never really get past, we'll, we'll never really be able to, we'll only be able to ignore the fact that in the introduction to the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, which contains, again, lectures on faith as the doctrine, 
you got to get past the hurdle that Joseph Smith signed his name to a statement that said, we believe that this book contains nothing less than the leading items of the religion that we profess to believe. So that's a, that's a particular problem when you're going to excuse the removal of lectures on faith from the doctrine and covenants. But uh, nonetheless, Joseph Smith spent a lot of time editing those lectures. He cared a lot about them. He wanted them inserted and he put them in first. They are in front of the commandments section, which is what we have or the covenant section. And they're very, very important. He starts off the whole thing discussing faith and he uses the text of Hebrews chapter 11, verse one to frame what faith is. And it says in the King James, it says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We'll definitely trot that verse out in our lessons when we talk about uh, faith along with Ether chapter 12 and sometimes we'll throw in Alma chapter 32. And remember the song, faith is like a little seed? No, it actually says, Alma says, the word is the seed. And if you plant the word, then that can lead to faith. Uh, And by the way, this is probably just sit down, buckle yourself in. If you really want to listen to this stuff, it's probably going to end up being three hours. I don't know. Maybe, I don't even know where this is going to go. I'm way off of my, uh, the order of operations that I had written down in my notes here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And uh, Moroni said it this way, I would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. And then let's do Alma chapter 32. That I think is important. In Alma chapter 32, uh, it's 20 something. It's 21. Now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. An important caveat. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 verse 1. I'm going to translate this for you. Uh, I've got to give some credit to my son who helped me with this translation. I had it almost right, but uh, made a rookie mistake. And he is a better Greek scholar than I am, so that's good. Let, let's let's look at the first three verses of the King James Version. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Well, I would translate that this way. And this hinges on a couple of things. First of all, you've got the things that are seen or not seen. That's the blepomenon or the ublepomenon. And then you have the evidence and uh, the substance, right? So King James said it was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So substance is the word hypostasis, meaning the reality. And the evidence, or it's translated as conviction in some places, is elenkos, which is more a process. It's like, it's a proof, like a mathematical proof or a persuasion, a process you might go through in a court of law, not necessarily just a piece of evidence. Now, in this case, in uh, in the Greek, it is listed as a noun, but 
that's not quite, it doesn't give you the sense of it. So I would translate it this way. I would say it that Paul would say it this way. Now, faith is the reality of things hoped for or hoping for the actual reality, the means of finding out things not seen. For in this, the ancients were vouched for, it's verse two, meaning by faith, the ancients, it says obtained good report in King James. What that means is they obtained the testimony of Jesus. They obtained, obtained the approval, the commendation of Jesus, which is what's required for getting out of this world and to get back into the heavens. And uh, then, then it goes on and says, we perceive that through faith, the eons have been organized. There's that word again, organization. Now, in this case, it wasn't cosmeo. It was, uh, let's see, it was katartizo, which means to complete, prepare, to uh, perfect, to uh, equip, train, make complete, restore. The important thing, the, the reason I bring this up is because it is not, this is not a creation out of nothing. This is not ex nihilo, uh, which is the Latin for out of nothing. Scholars will talk about ex nihilo in conjunction with how God created the world as uh, was decided by the ecumenical councils back in the third, fourth centuries uh, AD when the Christians were, were consolidating all the uh, what they understood to be the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. So ex nihilo enters into discussion here because it said in uh, in the King James, it said that we perceive that through, f- or how did he say it? Sorry, that was me. Through faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It appears, it appears that they're trying to say that the things which are seen were just sort of snapped into existence. They were not made of things which do appear. But here's my translation again. It says, we perceive that through faith, the eons have been organized by God's living voice such that the visible has not come into being from the shining things. That's important because the visible there again is the the blepomenon that's juxtaposed with the things ublepomenon, not seen in verse one. And then their contract contrasted against the phenomenon, which are the shining things. The vi- the, it can also mean visible things or clear things, but phino has a relationship to light or fire. And so this is the, the shining things, which is the higher world. This is like being, this is saying that uh, the things that you see on the wall in Plato's cave were not made from the, the things uh, that the, the prisoner sees when he exits the cave and sees the real world and the sun and, and all the things that are living outside of the cave. That's what that's trying to say is that the eons were organized by God's living voice such that the visible, what we see, didn't come into being from those shining things. And that's important because in our cosmology, we're going to find out that the devil <laughs> has something to do with the creation of what we're experiencing right now, which is sort of not what we hear. It's not standard fare in Sunday school. We'll just say it that way. Okay. So, and maybe this is the best way to approach it. Maybe my notes were not in the right order here, but I talked about repentance first, which I meant to talk about second. Wanted to talk about faith first, but again, faith is the the place where we've always gone wrong. All the religions go wrong at faith. And, Repent, you have, that's why you need to change your, your heart and mind is because you don't have faith. And without faith, of course, it's impossible to please God. So 
you understand what repentance is now. You understand kind of what faith is. Faith is, again, hope for the actual reality, not a false reality. Remember, Alma said that it was belief in things which are hoped for, which are true. It's not to have a perfect knowledge, but it's, it's got to be true. And then uh, faith is, of course, simultaneously hope for the actual reality and the means of finding those things out. So it's a cyclical thing, which is why Alma would say, plant my word into, the, into your heart like a seed in the soil. And if it grows, if it's resonant, if it expands your heart and mind, if it creates repentance, then it must be a good seed. If it, if it, and if it leads to more, greater faith, greater understanding, greater repentance, greater faith, greater understanding, greater rep- repentance, et cetera, et cetera. This is a cycle that we go through until what? Until you receive a witness after the trial of your faith. That, this is lofty stuff. I mean, we're, we're talking about the idea that, uh, as Mar- Moroni said in Ether chapter 12, remember, okay, I stopped at verse 6. I said, Moroni told us that he would speak somewhat concerning these things, these things, the hidden things, the unseen world, even the place at the right hand of God. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. For it was by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers after he had risen from the dead. And he showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. Wherefore, it must needs be that some had faith in him, for he showed himself not unto the world. Then he kind of flips here. He says, but because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world. And I don't think that means everybody at this point. But he, he will at some point. <laughs> anyway, he goes on, he says, and he glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others might, might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for the things which they have not seen. What are those things? Okay, I could keep repeating myself over and over and over again. But anyway, verse 9 was written to you and me. Wherefore, you may also have hope. You may also have hope and be partakers of the gift if you will but have faith. This is like Bugs Bunny popping up in Looney Tunes in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's like, I I should have made a left turn at Albuquerque. I mean... Everybody's always making a left turn in Albuquerque. We skip over faith. We think we have faith. We teach the kids that it means something that it doesn't and tell them that they have it at age eight and that they've repented and then they get baptized and they get the Holy Ghost and bam, just, you know, follow the checklist, follow, do, do what the culture is doing and endure to the end and you will be saved in the kingdom of God. Joseph Smith says, not so. In order to be saved, he says there's three things. And I think this is something that also bothered those guys that took out um, lectures on faith from the Doctrine and Covenants. He says in, in the third lecture of Lectures on Faith, Joseph says, Let us observe here that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. He said, number one, first, the idea that he actually exists. And that's usually where everybody gets off the bus. He's like, I believe in God. I have faith. You know, just close your eyes and believe strongly enough, right? And then, bam, you can move mountains. If you just had a mustard seed worth of faith in your mind, a particle of faith, you could move that mountain. We've miss- we're missing 
steps two and three here. Number two, secondly, a correct idea of his character perfections and attributes. This is necessary for an individual to have faith unto salvation and life. Thirdly, and I, and I would add to number two, that that doesn't just mean correct idea of Jesus's character, perfections, and attributes, although I think that probably would do it. But the whole point is that those who are sent by God, the angels, the his sent ones, as Nibley called them, they teach more than just about Jesus. They teach about the cosmos. They teach a cosmology that we, we hopefully can uh, pick up, decipher, try to understand so that it will build faith in us. And uh, so it's a correct idea of the character, perfections, and attributes of the cosmos also, and the other good and evil beings in the cosmos. It's important to understand their characters and attributes. Well, thirdly, uh, an individual must have this in order to exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. They must have an actual knowledge. Did you see he used the word actual? They must have an actual knowledge that the course of life which they are pursuing is in accordance with his will. That is a sobering sobering idea. He goes on in lecture six talking about sacrifice and sacrificing all earthly things and says that this was the state that the ancients obtained, those that obtained the good report or the commendation of Jesus, the, the testimony of Jesus described in the second verse of Hebrews chapter 11. They knew, not not believing merely, but they had actual knowledge. They knew that they were the favorites of heaven. They knew that they were saved. They knew and understood who they were. This is a big, big deal as relates to the cosmos and the narrative war that we are discussing in this podcast. Okay, wow. I'm just looking at the time here. We're 53 minutes into this, 54 minutes almost. And so I'm just going to continue on because, you know, you can turn this off at any time. Uh, I, maybe I'll be a little offended or, or maybe sorrowful or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? I don't even know if anybody's still listening. I'm just going to keep talking here and just see what happens. This, this is really significant. This uh, idea that we must have a correct understanding, a, a, a hope for or a belief in the actual reality, not a false reality, the actual reality, and that that leads to a change of heart and mind, a change, a, a change in our essence of who we are. A, an abandonment of our fallen nature. Oh, a good scripture to read right here is, of course, uh, Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19. Let's see how fast I can get to that. Mosiah three, nineteen. it says, The natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint, through the at yes, I read that differently, through the at of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things, which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. Wow. That's kind of what we're talking about. Well, faith is incredibly significant because... We need the knowledge that it produces. Faith is essentially belief. Uh, the reason that Paul wrote the section that we call now Hebrews chapter 11 is because 
he was talking about the covenant, the inheritance, the great, the, the, the legacy and uh, salvific inheritance uh, is the best way to put it, covenant or testament that the Lord left us or gives us in Hebrews uh, chapters 7 through 10. And then he goes on and he says something towards the end of chapter 10. He says that the righteous walk by faith and, and that those uh, that, that don't, the Lord is, is unapproving of. And um, then he has to stop and say, okay, here's what I mean by faith. Because every time he says the word faith in that letter to the Hebrews, he uses the word pistis in Greek. Pistis just meant belief. So here in, in Hebrews chapter one, he has to say, well, this is what I mean by the faith that makes a person um, acceptable to God, that justifies the righteous. That That is uh, why I'm explaining what this belief is. And so it's not just any belief. In the Book of Mormon, we can see that this belief gets gets contrasted with the word unbelief. Faith gets contrasted with unbelief. Unbelief wasn't pure atheism. It wasn't this idea that there was nothing or I had no belief in God. It was potentially wrong belief, belief that was ineffective, that was not salvific, that didn't lead to connection with the heavens or reconnection with the heavens or or uh, it, it didn't it didn't result in salvation. So you can believe in God all you want. The problem is, do you believe in the right God? And, you know, and I'm telling you right now, it's not just about the name of God, although the name is important. Um, you've got to understand the character, perfections, and attributes. The, in, in literature, this is expressed through uh, character development, but also through form, function, and iconography. And, and this is what we're going to get into a little bit more as we as we discuss this introduction to cosmology. But remember, here's what Joseph Smith said. This is why this is so important that we nail down, that we, we get a foundation at least where we can begin to contemplate in an elementary school, kindergarten level, what faith really is. It's because you cannot be saved without knowledge. Joseph Smith said that knowledge saves a man. In Teachings of the Prophet, Joseph Smith, here's what he says. He says, A man is saved no faster than he gets knowledge. For if he does not get knowledge, he will, brought, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world, as evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power than many men who are on the earth. Hence, it needs revelation to assist us and give us knowledge of the things of God. It's really a sobering thought, right? It's kind of frightening. Knowledge of the unseen world is what saves a man because there are evil spirits on the other side that want to distract us, keep us captive, and and thwart our our efforts to return to our heavenly home, to our parents, to our uh, to our true nature, to who we really are. Well, I I think I've been speaking really fast here. I think I've been talking fast. This is one of those episodes. Maybe you're not going to listen to at 1.5 speed. Maybe you'll want to go back and listen to some of this again. I, I really, look, it's up to you. Personally, I think this stuff is incredibly important and it's taken me a long time to repent, to reset my understanding of some of these ideas and they are incredibly significant, especially when you compare them with the most salient, the, the most important literature of 
the world from the since the beginning of time what what we have in the myths and in our great stories they they tell a narrative of a hero who must overcome evil and return generally return home uh, gaining greater knowledge gaining glory whatever and defeat the evil one this this is a big deal and in many cases it's difficult for the the hero to understand who he is and or sh- who she is and and to identify who the uh, the true messengers are to identify who's really on his side because the evil one's always putting forth counterfeits. They're, they're always trying to get you to come to their side and they're always trying to distract you and pull the world over your eyes like uh, Morpheus explains to Neo in The Matrix. So the reason for faith and repentance is so that a, an individual can overcome the counterfeits that are created by Satan, by his minions, as they try to distract us from our true nature and the reality of the war that we're caught up in here in this world. This is of the utmost significance. Remember, a man is saved no faster than he gets knowledge, for if he does not get knowledge, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world, as evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power than many men who are on the earth. Hence, it needs revelation to assist us and give us knowledge of the things of God. It's very critical. Some people would say, I have that revelation for you. I am trying to make it clear that this is knowledge you personally get from God. Remember, uh, again, remember lectures on faith. Number three, verse five, that the individual, any rational and intelligent being exercising faith in God unto life and salvation needs an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to the Lord's will. Not knowledge from your dad or your mom or your friends or whatever. This is knowledge from God. It needs revelation to assist us. And therefore, the most significant war, and again, one of the reasons Bobby and I named this show the Mind Virus Show, is because it's a narrative war. It's a war in the mind first and foremost, that influences us as we go about our activities here in the world and as we decide what information to uh, receive, what to throw out, how to spend our time, who we associate with, you know, and, and what we support in our culture. These are all, all things that that create the world that we are in. Okay, well, let's talk about cosmology now that we've gone through an hour's worth of stuff, which is really important. Cosmology, again, is the study of the cosmos. And as I started out explaining, the cosmos is the thing that was ordered or organized. And in many traditions, the thing that was ordered or organized is described this way. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And he divided it from the darkness. Okay, that's where I would stop right there. That's verse, the end of verse 4 in the King James Bible. I really like that. It's very, very um, poetic. It's beautiful language, but it's also allegorical. Let's read a little bit of Hugh Nibley from the third chapter of Enoch the prophet. Right at the start. The stories of the Garden of Eden and the Flood have more than any others damaged the credibility of the biblical message being the easiest to visualize, popularize, and satirize of any of the biblical accounts. I did read that right. It says these stories have done, have damaged the credibility of the biblical message, okay? Everyone has seen a garden and been caught in a pouring rain, and it requires no effort of the imagination for a six-year-old to convert concise, straightforward Sunday school recitals into the vivid images that will stay with him for the rest of his life. These stories are discredited as nursery tales because they are nursery tales, retaining forever the forms they take in the imaginations of small children, defended by grown-ups who refuse to distinguish between childlike faith and thinking as a child when it is time to put away childish things. It is equally easy and deceptive to fall into adolescent disillusionment and with emancipated teachers to smile tolerantly at the simple gullibility of bygone days while passing stern moral judgment on the savage old tribal god who, overreacting with impetuous and sadistic violence, wiped out Noah's neighbors simply for making fun of his boat building on a fine summer's day. The most resounding denunciation of the Christian God since the days of Celsus has been his indiscriminate cruelty in sending the flood. Wow, Dr. Nibley. So sharp. So sharp. I love, again, those first few verses of Genesis. And the garden story is, is really a great nursery tale. Okay? And... This is going to lead us to a discussion of literal thinking or linear thinking versus symbolic thinking. But let's first read from Joseph Smith how he described the creation. Because the creation story in Genesis is not a discussion of the, crea- the physical creation. This is a metaphorical creation of us. Yes, I just said that, and I'm going to go ahead and let that stand after thinking about it for a minute. I did take a pause for a second here. Joseph Smith in the King Follett Discourse said it this way. And again, this this is very much analogous to, in the beginning, God, how did he put it? Created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. I see this as analogous. Again, these are the ideas of Jordan Bruno, and if you're still listening, you're doing it voluntarily. I am not forcing you to listen to this stuff. In King Follett, he said this, 
intelligence is eternal. Let's back up a little bit. I want to, since you've got all day, and since we've got unlimited recording here, we'll read a little bit more. I want to reason more on the spirit of man, for I am dwelling on the body and the spirit of man, on the subject of the dead. Now, when you talk about, when he says the dead, he may not be talking about people who have died. He may be talking about us. Uh, let me just read you another scripture from Helaman chapter uh, 14, I believe. This is Helaman 14, verse 15 and 16. It says, he's talking about Christ, and he says, He must surely die so that salvation may come. It behooveth him and becometh expedient that he dieth to bring to pass the resurrection, which means the anastasis in Greek, the resurgere in Latin, meaning the lifting up of the dead that thereby men may be brought back into the presence of the Lord. Now, this is important because we've been taught sort of a linear cosmology. Again, I'm talking about those who come from the same background as I do religiously. This linear cosmology that you start out on the left side of the paper and you end up hopefully at the very top right-hand side of the paper in the highest degree of glory, but you have a a thing underlined by time. And I'm going to post a picture on... Uh, the website of the of a version of the Ptolemaic cosmos, which was often understood as a geocentric explanation for the physical world. It's really a metaphysical explanation of the thing that was organized. Remember, again, what I'm getting at here is that the physical creation is used as a metaphor to explain us. So, it's expedient that the Lord dies to bring to pass the lifting up of the dead. And who are the dead? That's us. So that, that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. And he goes on and he says, this is Samuel the Lamanite, by the way. Yea, behold, this death bringeth to, pass, bringeth to pass the resurrection and redeemeth all mankind from the first death, that spiritual death. For all mankind by the fall of Adam, being cut off from the presence of the Lord, are considered as dead. Again, all mankind, by the fall of Adam, being cut off from the presence of the Lord, are considered as dead, both to things temporal, meaning temporary, and things spiritual. So in both a temporal and a spiritual sense, as to things temporal and to things spiritual, we are considered dead in the scriptural prophetic sense here. Okay, what Joseph said in King Follett, I'm getting back to that. He said, I'm dwelling on the body and the spirit of man on the subject of the dead. I take my ring from my finger and I liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal part, because it has no beginning. You hear that? He says, I take my ring from my finger and I liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal part, because it has no beginning. And by the way, this, this version I'm reading from is the part edited by Joseph Fielding Smith, I'll put up a link to the six different sets of notes uh, that were made that were amalgamated into the King Follett Discourse as we have it in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, which again was edited by Joseph Fielding Smith. All right. He's likening a ring to the immortal 
part of man. It has no beginning. Suppose you cut it in two, then it has a beginning and an end. But join it again, and it continues one eternal round. So with the spirit of man, as the Lord liveth, if it had a beginning, it will have an end. All the fools and learned and wise men from the beginning of creation who say that the spirit of man had a beginning prove that it must have an end. And if that doctrine is true, then the doctrine of annihilation would be true. But if I am right, I might with boldness proclaim from the housetops that God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. God himself could not create himself. Intelligence is eternal and exists upon a self-existent principle. It is a spirit from age to age, and there's no creation about it. All the minds and spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible of enlargement. The first principles of man are self-existent with God. God himself, and here's where it starts to match up within the beginning. God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. The relationship we have with God places us in a situation to advance in knowledge. He has power to institute laws to instruct the weaker intelligences that they may be exalted with himself so that they might have glory, sorry, so that they might have one glory upon another. And all that knowledge, power, glory, and intelligence, which is, which is requisite in order to save them in the world of spirits. And then he goes on and he says this, this is good doctrine. It tastes good. I can taste the principles of eternal life and so can you. I'm pounding on the table. These are given me by the revelations of Jesus Christ and I know that when I tell you these words of eternal life as they are given to me, you taste them and I know that you believe them. You say that honey is sweet and so do I. I can also taste the spirit of eternal life. I know it is good, and when I tell you of these things, which were given me by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you are bound to receive them as sweet and rejoice more and more. Okay, so he's kind of saying what Alma was saying in chapter 32. He's like, look, plant this in your heart, and if it's good, it will grow. But but Joseph's got a little bit more of an assumptive close here. He's like, I know it tastes good, and if you don't like it, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Now, that the problem is this creates a great deal of contention. This narrative idea that you are the hero, a demigod, uh, someone who, like in Harry Potter, is a wizard and must become like the greatest people he knows of, that is threatening somehow. That's threatening to Satan, first of all. But it creates a lot of uh, anxiety, enmity, uh, discord with other people. It, this, again, you probably at this point are not thinking that I'm really off, off track very much from what you'd hear in Sunday school because we take this for granted, at least those of us that are older, the idea that uh, an individual is supposed to walk the path of the gods, to become like God. But it's becoming less and less discussed. It's, it's less and less focused on in 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 its place we talk about you know living with god someday or or becoming like him and we don't do this justice this is how joseph smith said it in the same talk in april 7th on april 7th 1844 when he gave this discourse and and i've talked about this before on the podcast but uh i think it's really important he says he says, I wish I was in a suitable place to tell it, that I had the trump of an angel, an archangel even, so that I could tell the story 
see the narrative, in such a manner that persecution would cease forever. What did Jesus say? The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, As the Father hath power in himself, even so hath the Son power. To do what? Why? What the Father did. The answer is obvious. In a manner to lay down his body and take it up again. Jesus, what are you going to do? To lay down my life as my Father did and take it up again. Do we believe it? If you do not believe it, you do not believe the Bible. The scriptures say it, and I defy all the learning and wisdom and all the combined powers of earth and hell together to refute it. Here then is eternal life to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely, by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. And I want you to know that God, in the last days, while certain individuals are proclaiming his name, is not trifling with you or me. I, I think it's fairly safe to say that this is just simply not talked about. This should be talked about all the time, every week. We should really be thinking on this, raising our gaze to this type of understanding. He says, you know, what is it to inherit the same power the same glory, the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of God and ascend the throne of eternal power, the same as those who have gone before. What did Jesus do? What does it mean to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ? I mean, we don't talk about this. We do not talk about it. When you climb up a ladder, and that's what it is, if you're going to go to the celestial kingdom, you're going to go through the, the terrestrial. And I'm telling you right now, you're in the telestial. You're going to climb up a ladder and you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. So it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. It is not all to be comprehended in this world. and It will be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation even beyond the grave. And then he goes on, he says, I suppose I'm not allowed to go into an investigation of anything that's not contained in the Bible. If I do, there will be many here that will cry treason and put me to death. Well, which they did a few months later. So th this, is, this is significant. And I'm going to probably go outside of the bounds of the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the other scriptures today. But this is very, very, very significant as relates to cosmology because in the beginning, what God cosmeoed, was the cosmos, the system, the thing. And it's talked about in allegorical format in different ways, in different cultures. And that is the beginning of cosmology. The word for that is cosmogony, meaning the birth of the cosmos. These are cosmogony stories that we see all over the place. The Greeks have a certain cosmogony. The Egyptians have one where the Bennu bird stands upon the, stands. Uh, up at the void and sings the creation into existence. We just heard Paul talking about the eons being organized by God's living voice. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, that's the start of John chapter 1. And we, of course, had the Genesis account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. Again, his voice, his, his creative voice is responsible for all of this. And there are many metaphorical, symbolic, or allegorical ways that this is discussed. 
And like Nibley explains, at some point we have to stop thinking like a child. But I would add to that the fact that in narrative form, this is how the cosmology is transmitted. So we have a problem here. We have most people in the world like to think in a linear or literal fashion. We are, we are very resistant, especially when it, in our Protestant uh, American religious culture, we are very resistant to metaphor. And so there, there ends up being these two absolutes, which are both incorrect. You have the absolutism of the pure scientific atheism that we see in this day and age where it's like, well, it can't be that God just spoke and then light occurred. And again, I'm reminding you that the light is hopefully you, not the light that you see when you turn on. Remember, DNC 93, the glory of God is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. Uh, Jesus says, behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, mankind. That's his glory. You know, what is the glory of God? Intelligence. In other words, light and truth. You have something to do with the glory of God, I hope. I really hope. But this, this is always expressed. This narrative is always expressed because words fail. It's expressed in allegory. Now, again, I'm speaking extemporaneously. I'm just off the cuff here. I'm hoping this is working. I'm really hoping for some feedback. I hope this is, this is interesting to you and important because, again, I'm, uh, I guess I've been pretty true to my persona on the podcast, and I've given you the from the beginning of time explanation on a lot of things here, and we're just getting to the good stuff. Um, the narrative is how the story is told because words fail us. The, now, that didn't make sense, but narrative is used because of its ability to convey allegory. And uh, I've pointed out previously how definitions of words matter and how, again, faith, repentance, etc. We've gotten those words wrong. We've gotten the word sin wrong. We've gotten the word cosmos wrong. We've gotten a lot of, a lot of things wrong in a religious sense because we've had 2,000 years to kind of muddy the waters. And, and we don't understand the original intent of the authors. But the original intent, intent of the authors are super important because they have seen and they have heard and they know and some of these chosen men were required to put into words or in the case of the Egyptians into hieroglyphs sacred carvings hieroglyph means sacred carving the story that then can lead other people to faith Remember, faith is expectation of the actual reality and simultaneously the means of finding it out. It has to be belief in things which are not seen, which are true, that then lead to knowledge. And after that cycle goes through as so many iterations so that an individual receives a, a, uh, a witness, they, they receive the witness after the trial of their faith, they receive the knowledge, then their knowledge is perfect. And it can happen in small, simple, small ways, and it can then happen in big chunks, epiphanies, revelations, whatever. You know, there there are many who have seen and heard and know, and uh, there are many types of encounters with the beyond. You probably have experienced some of those things. 
uh, and context really matters too. I, I hope I emphasize that enough here in on the podcast. Context is exceptionally important. When we screw up the definitions of the words and we eliminate the context, then we really have no basis for understanding what they're talking about. And we should definitely not be making checklist type of pronouncements for our neighbors about what the Bible or the Book of Mormon means when we don't have the context and don't have the understanding. Again, I'm like slapping my hands or pounding on the table here because it is so critical that we realize the original intent and the context of what is being spoken here. And what I've just given you, I believe, is the context for what uh, the, the the most perhaps significant cosmological passage in Mormon literature, which is Doctrine and Covenants section 76, apart from maybe, say, the whole, whole of the King Follett discourse. But DNC 76 is amazing because it discusses the telestial, again, where the liars, the murderers, <laughs> let me back up in here, Aaron, look at this. Uh, the telestial... The is uh, verse 99 of Doctrine and Covenants, section 76. Those who are of Paul, of Apollo, uh, of Cephas, some who say they are uh, of one, some who are of another, some who are of Christ, and some of John, and some of Moses, and some of Elias, and some of Esaias, uh, some of Isaiah, some of Enoch, but they receive not the gospel, meaning the good message, the truth, neither the testimony of Jesus, that's him bearing witness of you, Okay, it's not a testimony of Jesus. This is, again, what I've seen, what I've witnessed in our meetings is that you get up and you're told that if you just say it, if you say you feel good about it, if you just say you want to believe and that you do believe, then that belief will become stronger and will build faith. But that does not mean, and this is what's difficult for the hearer, when you're listening to those testimonies, are they actually rooted in truth? And what did they teach that person about the reality of the unseen world that would help them to keep themselves from be becoming captive to the beings in the unseen world, as Joseph Smith explained, that the, the knowledge was supposed to do? So, and another, another question about those testimonies is, will they, they, would they hold up in a court of law? And if they won't hold up, hold up in a court of law, if there was not actual revelation, if there was not actual knowledge versus a good feeling. How can they hold up in the courts of heaven if they won't hold up in a court of law here? What does a person really know with every fiber of their being? Or they just feel good about it? I would again put forth the idea that this is all more than a feeling, that it is, like Joseph Smith said, it, it, this is a discussion about knowledge, not mere belief. Well, uh, DNC section 76 verses uh, 99 onward. These are, this is talking about the telestial world. Again, cutting to the chase, this is where we are right now, the telos, the furthest away. The, uh, the word tele is part of, is the prefix on telestial. It, it, it's the same word that we use, or the same prefix we use for television, telephoto, uh, telephone. The, this is talking about the f a faraway thing as opposed to the terrestrial, the terra, the earth that we were supposed to be in, the garden state. The, state, the garden state is uh, described such because it's not disconnected from the realm of life. That's why everything grows there. That's why there is no death. It's, it's not cut off and fallen. It's, it's, a, it's an appropriate state for the, the cosmos as opposed to a fallen captive state. And again, 
we're going to get to this in just a second because most of you probably have understood it such that you believe this was a necessary condition. The, the, the condition we're in was necessary and that God wanted us to be here in this condition in order that we could become like him. I am telling you in no uncertain terms, I don't think that that's the way it worked. And I'll get to that narrative in a minute. But backing up that this is the telestial world. They received not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus. Again, his witness of you, his testimony of you, his saying that you had good report. The, the, remember, faith is required for the elders or the ancients to obtain that good report described at the start of Hebrews chapter 1. And they also didn't receive the prophets or the everlasting covenant. And again, the covenant, I would say, is analogous with the inheritance as described in Hebrews. Last of all, <laughs> these are they who will not be gathered with the saints to be caught up unto the church of the firstborn and received into the cloud. These are they who are liars and sorcerers and are adulterers and whoremongers, whoever loves and whosoever loves and makes a lie. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on the earth. They are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. They are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of Almighty God until the fullness of times when Christ shall have subdued all enemies under his feet and shall have perfected his work. Well, lest you worry that that includes you because you're here, go back and look at the descriptions of the celestial. It also contains present tense language. When you look at DNC 76, it's, it, you can see that it talks about past, present, and future language. Uh, they are they who died without the law. This is the terrestrial world, verse 72. These are they who died without the law. These are they who are the honorable men of the earth, 75, who were blinded by the craftiness of men. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness. So a present tense statement. Uh, getting... Uh, earlier in the chapter where we're talking about the celestial. It says in verse 51, they who received the testimony of Jesus, past tense, who believed on his name, who were baptized, but then it goes on, verse 54, they are the church of the firstborn. They are into whose hands the Father has given all things. Uh, verse 58, it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God. And then it says in verse 60, they shall overcome all things. You see this past, present, and future. This is not a linear plan of salvation drawing type of a text. This is something about the state of being of individuals in existence, regardless of which state or sphere they, they currently find themselves. So, <laughs> again, I'm off, I'm off on a tangent here, but... We were talking about communications from the beyond, and you've probably had them. Have you ever had a dream that was meaningful? Or are you like Ebenezer Scrooge who says to the spirit that he sees at night that, oh, you're some figment of my imagination. You're, you're a, a piece of meat that's undigested. Uh, go check out J Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol for <laughs> this uh, allegory. <laughs> about a man who needed to change his heart and mind. Uh, some people have inspirations that they 
have thoughts impressed upon their mind. Joseph Smith talked about the Holy Spirit giving sparks of intelligence or rather uh, here I'm, I'm finding it here in uh, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 149. There are two comforters spoken of. One is the Holy Ghost, the same as given on the day of Pentecost and that all saints receive after faith, repentance, and bapti- baptism. This first comforter or Holy Ghost has no other effect than pure intelligence. That's what I was looking for. It's more powerful in expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, and storing the intellect with present knowledge of a man who is the literal seed of Abraham than one that is a Gentile, though it may not have half as much visible effect on the body. For as the Holy Ghost falls upon one of the literal seed of Abraham, it is calm and serene, and his whole soul and body are only exercised by pure spirit of atel- the pure spirit of intelligence, while the effect of the Holy Ghost upon a Gentile is to purge out the old blood and make him actually of the seed of Abraham. That man that has none of the blood of Abraham naturally must have a new creation by the Holy Ghost. In such case, there may be a more powerful effect upon the body and visible to the eye than upon an Israelite, while the Israelite at first might be far before the Gentile in pure intelligence. Okay, so that, that was a lot of extra stuff there about the whole effect on the body. You know, you can decide what to make of, make of that. I want you to remember the first comforter of the Holy Ghost has no other effect than pure intelligence and is more powerful in expanding the mind and enlightening the understanding and storing the intellect with present knowledge of a man who is the literal seed of Abraham than one that is a Gentile. I want to kind of truncate that and just say it's very powerful in expanding the mind and enlightening the understanding and storing the intellect with present knowledge. That's what the Holy Ghost does. And there are a lot of ways that we receive the Holy Ghost and we receive inspiration from heaven and knowledge from heaven, and that, that's one way that it's done. But there are others then who have gifts or, or are gifted with experiences where they see and talk to spirits. That's a possibility. Those types of people tend to keep their mouths shut because they're ostracized or, or uh, find that it scares others or causes them to be envious of their gifts or whatever. And they're, they also have a problem in that they're always trying to discern whether they're getting good or bad spirits. That's a difficult problem. Some people hear voices. And, and that's, of course, something that you never want to admit to other people is that you're hearing voices in your head. I mean, what are those voices telling you? Oh, throw this guy in an insane asylum. There are men who have communicated that they have seen and heard and know. And in many cases, these are the men that write in the scriptures. Sometimes they'll say, whether out of the body or or in the body, I could not tell. In other cases, they will describe having handled, touched, or experienced. In some cases, they will explain that the other world is more real, more colorful, more vibrant, more full of smells and, and uh, tantalizing uh, sense, sensory, uh, ex- a more sensory experience. And this is why it's so significant in the Marvel movie, the um, Thor Love and Thunder, that they go into this shadow realm where there is no color. This is a very, very uh universally understood at least by the esoteric crowd idea that the real world is more vibrant well in any case what i'm getting at is these men have left us many hints about the unseen world about the actual reality that we should hope for that will build faith and help us to gain our own knowledge and understanding given from god that the course that we are pursuing in our lives again i'll quote that so that i don't get it wrong that the 
course of life which we are pursuing is according to his will so that we can have knowledge, not mere belief. We may not, a person, I don't know, uh, Joseph said that all the experiences that he had had were were available to, you know, he said that God had given to the 12 at least is the way he put it. Um, And I think it's uh, right after the passage that I was just quoting. He said, uh, yeah, it is. It's on page 149 again. This principle ought in its proper place to be taught, for God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve, and even the least saint. And the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. For the day must come, again, this is coming out of Hebrews. This is chapter 8, I think. He says, For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know ye the Lord, for all shall know him who remain from least to greatest. How is this to be done? be done by the sealing power and the other comforter which is spoken of, which we manifest by revelation. The other comforter, uh, he goes on to say, is Jesus himself. And by the way, this passage that I just read is uh, what comes right before he starts to describe the Holy Ghost having no other effect other than pure intelligence. So we have people out there who do know the true narrative and they communicate it. And then when they communicate it, that narrative is attacked and many well-meaning people and, and evil people try to change it because they're deceived by the world that has been pulled over their eyes, this counterfeit world, this fallen world, this Plato's cave. We, we begin to insert ourselves into the discussion and we, we see it the way we want to see it. Uh, the Harry Potter world contains this allegory that demonstrates the difficulty because we our desires really get um, wrapped up into what we what we believe, and the metaphor used in the Harry Potter movie is the mirror of Erised. It's in the first book, in the book called the Sorcerer's Stone, also alternatively called the Philosopher's Stone in England. And in that book, Harry finds in the castle as he's walking around at night with his invisibility cloak, trying to find more information out about this MacGuffin, this uh, philosopher's stone that the Dark Lord seeks so that he can have immortality and eternal life. Okay, that's what the stone, literally, they say the stone provides the person that has it with the ability to brew a potion called the elixir of life, which gives them everlasting life. Oh, and it changes base metal into gold. You can change lead into gold using this stone, which is, of course, an alchemical metaphor for changing, you know, uh, Malachi. It says that God will become a refiner of silver and make the sons of Levi pure and all that stuff. So that's about their eternal progression. So we have people who have given us the truth, and then, of course, that narrative comes under attack. But the narrative has to be conveyed in language, which is difficult. So it gets conveyed in, in certain ways. And we do see it in, in many cultures throughout history. We see it in, in pure form, and we, or at least more pure form, and some that are in degraded forms or whatever. And, th- and this is where Hugh Nibley was so great. Is he had read all this stuff, and a lot of it in its own original languages. And then he was able to put all these pieces together in a big picture overview format. And we are the beneficiaries of his incredible amount of work if we can see what he was actually doing. And that's, that's the problem here. But 
these guys that see and hear and know, they're faced with a difficult problem because here's what it says at the end of the DNC 76 section. It says, this is the end of the vision, verse 113, which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the spirit. But, this is a big but, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he showed unto us, which surpass all glory and understanding and in might and dominion which he commanded us that we should not write while we were yet in the spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves that through the power and manifestation of the spirit while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. And they end and say, and to God and the Lamb be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these who loved God, who to whom he had granted the privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves, these men were left with a problem here. They had to convey in language in our language, in our written language or our verbal language, they had to convey certain ideas to the people that they were supposed to teach. And in the case of Joseph and Sidney, what, what resulted, we had, we have now as Doctrine and Covenants section 76. It says they were commanded to write that while they were yet in the Spirit. So I think the English words that we have there are pretty good. It doesn't mean we understand the meaning of all the English words. I think I've just pointed out a really important key relative to the understanding of Doctrine and Covenants section 76, that you can see past, present, and future tenses all wrapped into the descriptions of all three kingdoms of glory. We like to think of that only as applying after we're dead. But what I think that you should understand is that here in the celestial world, you have beings of all kinds of um, types of glory here. And they... They differ in glory, but in a, in a lot of ways they're hidden or covered up or obscured by the world, again, that has been pulled over our eyes, to borrow the language from the Matrix. So angels do walk among us. Maybe they may not understand who they really are. Some of them, I'm sure, do, and they are fulfilling their mission. But they are putting forth this message, and, and clearly Joseph Smith was one of those people, putting forth the message that is supposed to be salvific. It's supposed to teach us cosmology. It's supposed to teach us an understanding of what we are caught up in, the thing that, w- that was organized, that we are part of, not just what we're experiencing here in this world, but what we really are in an eternal sense. And that's what's so important. This is one of the reasons that I get hung up on uh, the love and thunder thing w- with Thor there. The, Thor is, in this movie, he is a representation of Christ. Uh, in the Norse mythology, Thor, Tahor, is an adaptation of the Egyptian Horus, who is one of the high gods who participates in creation, who uh, fights against Set. He is married to the great or is, uh, 
the consort of the great goddess Isis. He's a, he's a, takes part in a creative pair. He's the son of the great Amun. This is the heavenly persona of Jesus Christ, and it etymologically ends up in the Norse mythology as Tahor, which again etymologically it's descended from Horus. So we have a northern representation of this great god of the heavens. Well, in the Norse mythology, he has a hammer and he is a light bearer. He, he has the lightning, right? The thunder and the lightning are associated with him. And, of course, in the Avengers myth- mythology, he loses his eye, just like Horus loses his eye in the Egyptian mythology. Now, we're not going to get into this a lot because we're now an hour and 44 minutes into this. Again, speaking extemporaneously. Love to get your feedback to see if you like this stuff or not. If anybody's listening at the end, uh, I have really no way of knowing how many people went all the way through this. But if if you do, please comment. Leave us a breadcrumb on the website. Let us know if you made it all the way to the end of the podcast. But uh, if you want to check out the Eye of Horus, this is a really important concept in Egyptian mythology. And you can go Google this. You can look at it on Wikipedia or whatever. You can get all kinds of things said about it. In fact, remember, Egyptian religious religions spanned several thousand years. So it went through cycles of apostasy and restoration and apostasy and restoration. And so not everything that's said in Egypt or said of Egypt would necessarily be the pure narrative. But the Eye of Horus is an incredibly important symbol, sometimes called the Wajat Eye or the Yujat Eye. And it, uh, <laughs> you can read about it. I'm not going to get into it right now, but it represents a lot of things. But the point is that Set, the rival or brother of Horus, stole his eye. And this sometimes relates to the... Uh, the narrative where you see Osiris having been dismembered by Set and his body parts spread across the world and Isis has to put him back together. But see, Osiris and Horus are the same person. They're just, you just have an earthly persona in in Osiris and a heavenly persona in Horus. And so this, this idea that Set, the evil one, wants to take them apart and still the most important parts of of the individual, which in the case of Horus, this is the eye. Remember, the eye must be single to the glory of God. Uh, if there's light in the eye, there's light in the whole body. The light comprehends all truth. The, and then, therefore, the person can comprehend all truth. Th- this, is, this is very much in, in the Mormon theology, if we want to see, if we want to look for it a little bit. But why are, why are we talking about the eye of Horus? It's because in the Avengers movie, they have uh, Tahor, or Thor, lose his eye, and then they replace it with a mechanical eye, a counterfeit eye. This is in Avengers Endgame. No, it's Avengers uh, Infinity War, I believe, is what it is. And and so you have a situation here in Love and Thunder, what I was getting at earlier in Love and Thunder, is that you, you've got this goofy approximation, this, this screwed-up approximation for what's supposed to be a Jesus figure, our hero, Thor running around and he's he can never figure out who he is he doesn't know himself and that's what cosmology or the study of the cosmos is supposed to teach us so these men who have seen and heard and know and understand the true reality they they have this job to try and communicate this this material and it's been taught in a variety of ways throughout history and it's taught in varying degrees of detail also. Not everybody gets the same message. 
in the ancient world, the masses were privy to essentially the festivals that were held eight times a year. And in some cases, this, this changes. It's not always in the same fashion, but the most appropriate scheduling of the festivals would be on the solstices and equinoxes and the cross-quarter days because those relate to the great sun god, the, the, uh, our position relative to the sun as we go through cyclical time throughout the year. And in those festivals, games were held, uh, pageants were enacted, parades held, all the various ways you might do this in the ancient world to, uh, to uh, via symbol and imagery and action, convey some sort of a message. That's what was done. And the cities were constructed in such a way so that there were sacred points. And the story could be told in a way that transcended regular language. That was one way that it was told. And again, remember, we kind of talked about, I've been alluding to this, that there are different modes of communication. There are modes in which we receive knowledge from heaven, which in a lot of cases are nonverbal. But the way that we communicate being verbal, it leaves a lot to be desired. We, we're speaking English, and I've, I've spent an hour and 50 minutes here trying to set out a lot of context so that what I'm about to say next won't be as misunderstood as it would have been had I started off with the narrative. I'm telling you about the narrative. I'm getting, giving you meta-knowledge, meta-information that is supposed to help so that what I say next will be understood. But as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, and therefore a movie is worth, what, a, a bazillion words? And that was the point of the ancient festivals and also uh, their ritual dramas, which were w- would be what you would experience in a temple if you went through a temple with a, with a ritual drama, which is exactly what the Egyptians had. Not all temples in the ancient world we don't we don't at least currently perceive that all temples or cathedrals had ritual dramas but there is a lot of evidence that many of them did at one point have ritual dramas and in a lot of in most cases that has morphed into a situation where the drama is no longer presented and the and the edifice is just simply used as a, a house of meditation or or prayer or worship or whatever uh, for lectures for events etc cetera, etc cetera. But this is the whole premise of, e- of Hugh Nibley's book, uh, The Joseph Smith Papyri and Egyptian Endowment. He's trying to explain how the papyri that are associated with the Book of Abraham are related to temple ritual drama. And that was what Abraham explained at the very start of the passage uh, in Abraham chapter 1. He says that... Uh, let's see, let me get to it real quick. Abraham chapter one, verse two, he says, well, verse one, he says, I found that it was needful, needful for me to obtain another place of residence uh, on account of perhaps his father was trying to sacrifice him to the gods. And <laughs> um, he says, finding that there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right went whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. So the, the blessings of the fathers, not his fathers, but the blessings of the fathers, meaning the, the, the uh, knowledge that they transmitted 
that was salvific. Those are the blessings of the fathers. And he wanted the right to be ordained to administer the same. And then he goes on and makes a parenthetical statement. Having myself been a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations and a prince of peace and desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers. It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time even from the beginning or from the fa- from before the foundation of the earth down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam, the first father through the fathers unto me. And then he goes on to say his fathers had turned from their righteousness. They, they had apostatized. So Abraham not only became a high priest, he became the patriarch, the first father. That's what patriarch means. Patre, patri meaning... Uh, father, pater in Latin, and arche, arc, uh, meaning archon or ruler, and it can mean first in rank, place, or time, whatever. So Adam technically is the patriarch. He is the first in rank and time, and Abraham became the first father or the, the one holding the birthright at the time that he was alive. Back to the point, this knowledge, this narrative was communicated via temple ritual, at least at the time of Abraham. And it's interesting because we also have, in our day and age, we have a temple ritual and we, it, we're very conspicuously different than we, meaning the, the LDS church, the Mormon church. We're conspicuously different from other Christian churches because we have this ritual drama that is supposed to convey salvific knowledge. And unfortunately, we have modified our understanding of that to one that I think it's a common understanding that people have with the book of Abraham or the, the, the texts that they like to use to say that Joseph Smith didn't make a correct translation. It's unlikely that the text of the book of Abraham is a translation of any of the existing papyri because those are, uh, versions or, or copies of the Book of the Dead and the Book of Breathings, which are essentially priestly shorthand for the temple ritual of the, the Egyptians. And so if Abraham sought to administer those blessings, the rite of the first fathers, which were always conveyed in this dramatic ritual format, whether it be the, via festival or, or via temple ritual, he would have needed the narrative. And so those priestly shorthand uh, writings probably came, they probably weren't Abraham's specific copies of the, of the ritual. They probably were copies of copies of copies because Abraham, we know from historical record that the, that the papyri Joseph had was, was pretty late. It's, it's not as old as we think Abraham was. So they, the idea is Abraham probably initiated this line of ritual as he attempts to tell the story in the way that he has been commissioned to do by God. Well, the reason that we use temple ritual or you would see temple ritual used is because it conveys more than words can convey. It, it through action, for, through form, through function, it's, like, it's essentially the ancient version of a movie. And that's also what the festivals, festivals were. They're these ancient versions of movies. And I would argue that even in our day and age, a movie doesn't quite do it justice. We have this an interesting point where uh, the first time that Adam and Eve are called to the altar in the Mormon temple ceremony, where 
the narr- narrator says, uh, a couple will now come to, to an altar. Uh, this couple at the altar represents all of you as if at the altar you must consider yourselves respectively to be Adam and Eve. And so if you have a, if you have a live, um, I'm going to use the word endowment here, speaking of all ritual dramas, not just a, the one that happens in the LDS temple, but if you have a live reenactment or a live, again, reenactment's not the word. If you have a live enactment, a live story, a live telling, then the initiates, the participants, can participate in it as if they were part of the story. So it's better even than a movie. I guess it might be akin to where our technologists are trying to take us these days with virtual reality. Maybe that's what it is. It's a lot like um, play acting as if you were in the Matrix. It's a mock-up. It's a mockery, which is interesting because it's very clear in the temple ceremony that God will not be mocked. And so we really ought to understand it for what it is, a mock-up rather than an actual uh, efficacious act. We, you, you go through the temple and you are not doing what we commonly portray in our culture that you're doing. You, the, these, these acts are not efficacious. It is, the, it is the symbolic representation or blueprint that will help you make the efficacious action if you recognize how the allegory applies to you in your life. Now here, to back me up, I've got Hugh Nibley's Temple and Cosmos in my hand. I'm going to read to you from one of the most important pages in the book, which is page 14. The temple is essentially the hierocentric point around which all things are organized. It's the omphalos, the navel, around which the earth was organized. The temple is a scale model of the universe. Let me read that again. I'm going to say it. I think Farms edited this. It's, it should say the temple is a scale model of the cosmos because that's more significant to us now that we understand that the cosmos is more than just the physical world. This is about your journey through time and space, right? The temple is a scale model of the cosmos boxed to the compass and it's in a very important feature of every town in our, con- in our contemporary civilization as in the ancient world. And he goes on and he says, um, it's a scale model of the cosmos for teaching purposes and for the purpose of taking our bearings on the universe and in the eternities, both in time and in space. And as far as we are concerned, we take our center there. Interesting stuff, right? I mean, this is 1992. Uh, Hunibly had been talking about this stuff for a long time. His books are essentially collections of essays that he wrote and talks that he gave. This is Deseret Book Company. I mean, we should we should be reading Temple and Cosmos in every temple prep class. That would be something, wouldn't it? And if we could read between the lines and discuss more freely what was going on, we might have better understanding. It might be more efficacious for us. And I, I just uh, wish that we could uh, have more free discussion in some of our the groups that we get together with. But this is temple ritual. This is important. You, if you happen to wear the garment of the holy priesthood, which is what they call it, you have on the chest the symbols of the square and the compass. These are often 
degraded as simply Masonic symbols. They are not. These were the ancient uh, tools of building. So if you're going to build a temple, you would need a square and a compass. A compass uh, is something that can be looked at in two different ways. One is in the sense of pointing it, pointing to north, but also in the sense that you use a, a, an architect's compass or a, a draftsman's compass to draw a circle. And so with a square or a ruler, you're able to not only map out on, uh, on paper or on a, on a plane uh, physical objects you can you can orient objects to where they're supposed to be and and architecturally construct stuff which is what we're in a way we're building temples are we not metaphorically speaking you can also chart your course uh, through the through the uh, great ocean of the great deep or you know through the stars or on or on the oceans here on the earth you can use the square and the compass to chart a course and that's also that also involves not only a, a straight edge or a square, but both types of compasses, those that point direction and those that draw uh, circles. If you use a, a compass in navigation, you would, you would often use it to um, walk off distances, uh, you know, from end point to end point. And, and so that's a common thing that's overlooked as we... Uh, look at w what we actually have in our our temple heritage. We have a great rich heritage, but we just kind of miss the point. I think again, this is my this is my uh, opinion. You are not obligated to <laughs> to do anything with this more than you feel you should do. Well, uh, we live in a world that is profane. We live in a world that is very focused on linear, literal understanding. And I am telling you, the ancients understood it dramatically differently. And they are the ones that gave us all the holy writings. They're the ones that left us with the temple tradition. They're the ones that, that left us with all the festivals, with all the holy days, the holidays. Did you not know that, that our word holiday comes from literally the English holy day? These were holy days. What are they to us now, aside from Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving? For the most part, our holidays are profane. In fact, our uh, holiday of uh, Halloween is a celebration of evil in a lot of ways. So we, we are missing a very rich part of our heritage when we do not look at the, the things that we have available to us in terms of symbol and allegory and metaphor. Well, this was a problem in the ancient world. The, the Egyptians had an incredibly rich narrative, and it was engraven using hieroglyphs. Again, hieroglyph means sacred carving. It was carved or engraven upon the walls of all their temples, and, it, and all their temples told stories about the initiate, whether he be Unas or Horus or Osiris or whatever. The, the idea is you take upon you the name of the initiate and you consider yourself to be that guy. In our case, we consider ourselves to be Adam and Eve and you go through the process and it tells you something about where you are in the cosmos, in time and space and what you should do next. You, If you go to the mall, which we don't do anymore, we just go to amazon.com. If, if you go to the mall 
it used to be that you would walk in and you would look at, and it's still there, but you'll walk in and one of the first things you'll see is a, a little exhibit that has a map of the mall on it. And if you want to go to Foot Locker, you've got to, if you're not familiar with the mall, you walk up to that little map and you find, what do you look for first? The you are here dot. That's what you look for. You go to the, you have a little miniature temple experience. Every time you go into the mall and you look at the map and you say, where's the you are here dot? Oh, here I am. I'm right here. And then you chart your course to the Foot Locker or to the, uh, I don't know, what is it, the the sock shop? What what do we go to the mall for, JCPenney's? <laughs> if anybody's still going to the mall, please chime in on the in the comments section. Oh, I am uh, two hours into this, and have I really said anything interesting yet? I am not sure if this is interesting to you guys or not. One thing that you... Uh, well, I did, I did just lose my train of thought here. And what I was going to tell you is that the first commandment as written in Genesis or sorry, Exodus 20 is problematic. And this is the type of heresy that would get me burnt at the stake in any, (laughs) any Christian church worth its salt right now. So please don't turn me in. But I've just told you about the sacred carvings, the engravings on the walls of the Egyptian temple. And this is very, very Mormony because you go to at least the, the Salt Lake Temple in its former condition. And there were murals on the walls and people would come in and do the do the traditional in-person uh, play act. And the reason there's the murals on the walls is so you can get yourself into the movie, into the play act. So you can con- so you can consider yourself part of the story. And same thing in the Manti Temple. But uh, I'm, I'm saying that because that's exactly what an Egyptian temple was. It wasn't just the, the paintings or murals on the wall. It was also the carvings. The, car, the things were carved. The, the statues were carved. And they were painted. We look at those murals today in sandstone, and most of them are sandy looking. It's as if they had this uh, obsession with brown. And that's not the case. These would have been colorfully painted. They did not have the digital flat panels everywhere to to show the digital world. They carved them on the wall. Well, uh, this is interesting because there was a fight between the Hebrews and the, uh, I want to say the Jews and the Egyptians. See, the, the Jews made it out to be that the Hebrews hated the, the Egyptians and granted, they were in an apostate state, especially when Moses had to leave. But did what what really happened there is a good question, because the Jews at the time of Lehi had so modified their narrative that God destroyed them and <laughs> did it in dramatic fashion or allowed them to be destroyed, at least. And uh, Nephi preserved the record and he wrote it in the Egyptian characters because they were still at the time of Lehi important. They were still used and it was probably not hieroglyph. It was probably demotic or hieratic, which are two more cursive forms of the, of the hieroglyphs, but hieroglyphs meaning sacred carvings. What they really are is pictograms. They are sacred images. These are, these are 
This is a higher form of language that allows us to convey more than words can convey in the form of an image. And so you can convey all kinds of meanings by combinations of uh, hieroglyphs, of, of pictograms in various forms and coupled with other pictures and things like that and uh, statues, etc. And then, of course, coupled with uh, a live dramatic presentation, the initiate would get immersed in this temple drama where they'd learn about their place in the cosmos, what had happened and what was going on and, and, and hopefully be able to orient themselves to where they were and what they were supposed to do. It was, it was supposed to lead to a revelatory experience for the initiate. Well, here's the, the interesting thing, because the, the people that wrote Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomists, the people that destroyed the religion of, of Lehi, uh, the, the religion of Moses, the, the ones that uh, crucified the Christ, okay, this is what they said about Egypt. They said in, in chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 20 of Exodus, it says, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. This is the Ten Commandments, of course. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods except me. I'm reading this from the King James, but and I've, I've replaced the word before, gods before me, in verse 3 with gods except me. And that is an appropriate replacement. I have translated this out of the Septuagint before. It says, thou shalt not make unto thee any carved image. I don't know how long I should sit here and wait to let that sink in. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, is what it says in King James, any carved image. Or, and this is not just relating to the graven images, it says any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Period. Full stop. Here in uh, King James, it has a colon as if saying, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. But really, in the, in the old text that we have, it doesn't necessarily make that a colon, and it doesn't relate the, the graven images to bowing down to them or serving them. This is a, this is a total rip on... Egyptian religion and the Egyptian temple, they did not want, the Deuteronomists did not want that narrative to be told. They did not want that form of teaching to occur, and they gutted or cleansed, according to uh, King James, they cleansed the temple of Solomon, and ultimately that temple was destroyed, and we really don't know what that temple looked like. We really don't know but they got rid of any troublesome any any troublesome narratives that that didn't serve their purposes at the time of Lehi and hence God destroyed that civilization or allowed that civilization to be destroyed by uh, a neighboring nation and their people were taken into captivity and the whole thing was thrown into a tailspin and what we have was written hundreds of years later by people trying to explain what had happened to them. And then those people failed to recognize their God as he came among them and crucified him. And granted, what they actually had didn't retain remnants of uh, 
of the older religion enough that it symbolized and and um, pointed to Christ, and all the law was supposed to point to Christ, but uh, clearly it was uh, convoluted enough that hardly anyone recognized him. And if you read the Gospels, it's pretty clear that uh, the Lord was doing things like breaking the Sabbath and, and um, flouting their traditions in such a way that they killed him. Well, he allowed himself to be killed. But I hope that you'll let that sink in. This is a, this is a practice that has been under attack and, and has been uh, usurped, overtaken, and modified so that the narrative, the true narrative, can't be told. This is, this is so, so important to the adversary that you believe the wrong thing and that you do, as it says in the book of Job, you suffer and curse God and die and hate God. That's what he wants. He wants you to blame God. And that's what's so significant relative to the plight of Christianity right now is that we don't have a good explanation for the concept of theodicy. I may have addressed this in recent podcasts, but theodicy technically means uh, theo, God, disi, the justice of. So the the justice of God. Why would essentially it's why would a good God put us here in this hellish world so that we suffer and die and we don't understand anything we've lost we don't have any memory of what came before or worse yet he created us out of nothing and he's trifling with us remember joseph smith said god is not trifling with you or me he there's a purpose that we're here and we're we're here to prove ourselves and we're here to continue our uh, to participate in this warlike world so that we can continue our eternal progression afterwards that we've been progressing before. Some have progressed to an incredibly high place. They are those of the glory of the sun. There are many who are the glory of the moon also. You know, these, and then there's, of course, many who choose to be the, the liars, the adulterers, the whoremongers, and those who follow um, personalities like they say they follow Paul, Apollo, uh, Cephas, and Christ, but they haven't actually received the testimony of Jesus. They aren't actually in touch with Jesus. This is this is significant uh, stuff to ponder if you haven't if you haven't pondered it before. Well, this as as we alluded to earlier, this narrative has been taught since the beginning. Abraham pointed that out. Joseph Smith pointed that out, and it is told as a cosmogony. How the, how the cosmos was born, and that cosmogony takes many forms. In, in the Christian world, it's generally a garden story, a creation story followed by a garden story, because the creation story always ends in the garden with the, with the uh, creation of Adam, and then Eve is taken from him, which is metaphorical. And then, of course, we throw onto Eve the, uh, the blame for having gotten us into this plight. That's, that's one where one place that we place the blame. But in, uh, in the culture I'm familiar with, we have a different understanding of theodicy. We place it squarely at the feet after Eve. We place it at the feet of God for having put her in an unwinnable situation. So the story goes like this, that in the beginning there was a council and God presented a plan for us to become like him. 
as opposed to the idea that you've been progressing through eons and people have made it to different levels in the cosmos already, which is evidenced by where Satan and Jesus were at. But in our story, we say, well, there was a plan and and two plan or there was a council and two plans were presented. Rather, I should say one plan was presented. That was that God's the father says, hey, I'm going to make all of you guys into gods. And in order to do that, you have to go down to hell. Well, he doesn't say hell, but he says, when I got to put you through hell, got to put you into suffering and and uh, remove myself from all of you and uh, make you subject to opposition. And then there were two plans of salvation essentially presented, one where Jesus says, I will go and suffer for them. And, and then the other guy was like, well, I'll, I'll figure out a way to do this so that nobody is lost. And then, of course, God casts out uh, or God chooses Jesus and uh, Satan is not happy, so he casts him out. And then he sends us to this world where Satan is to be buffeted by Satan. So the Mormon theodicy, the Mormon understanding of theodicy is essentially more complicated. And, and we do have a lot more to say about the fall than other Christian cultures because of the Pearl of Great Price and because of the Book of Mormon. But our our because the other Christian worlds who the other Christian denominations or the the most of the other uh, lines of philosophy there, they have to settle on uh, an ex nihilo creation, meaning you're just kind of created out of nothing and God trifles with you. He puts you here in this world. And so we're suffering because God is either uncaring or he simply can't do anything about it. It's, it's a conundrum. And so people tend to abandon the Christian narratives, not everybody, but a lot of the Christian, Christianity has this problem because it can't quite put its finger on theodicy. Well, this is a, a more modern problem because, of the, because we've adopted this idea of ex nihilo. And what I'm telling you is that God did no such thing. He didn't, he didn't propose a plan for us to come and suffer, and he didn't propose a plan where... Um, He's just trifling with you. His, his intention, his work, and his glory is to bring to pass not only the immortality, but the eternal life, meaning living like God, being God, nothing less than glorious, fiery beings. That's his, been in his intention from the beginning, and, and that's why I read from King Follett to start with when we started talking about the creation of the cosmos, because that's the whole point, is the, the creation is for us. It's not for the animals. It's not for the plants. It's not for the physical creation. And again, in, in the Genesis account, that's a metaphor about you. You move from levels of plants to animals to man to angels to God, you know. So th- this, is, uh, this is the problem with um, the Christian defense against the question of theodicy. And in the Mormon world, it's just simply we, we say, well, no, he had to do this because we must experience this opposition, this unseen, evil, abject opposition in order to become gods. And then we punt and say, well, God is just and everybody here is just having an experience that's fit for them. And then in the end, they'll, God will judge them and they'll either go to a, a telestial, terrestrial or celestial place of glory as lo- as long as they accept our temple work for the dead when when they're done when you know when they're in the spirit world as long as they get those stamps of approval then they can uh, 
be admitted into the, the third level of the celestial kingdom so that they can progress and have posterity, as long as they just accept it in the other world. It's, it's pretty convoluted. I think any honest uh, student of, of uh, our... <laughs> I could get into real trouble for talking this way. This is my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. It's not what is officially taught. I am not saying any of this is officially taught. This is just the way I perceive it. And I think that if you are an honest observer, you'll come away and say, hey, Jordan here understands pretty well how we perceive what is being taught in uh, in these circles. And th- that's the more informed understanding of what uh, of how we see the, the cosmology, the 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 origination of the situation that we're in the co- so it is a cosmogony and it is also what is called in uh, scholarly circles a titanomachy or a theomachy it's a it's simultaneously the birth of what ha- what's going on here and the um war between the gods and and the reason for why we're in the current state that we're in and i think there's a uh, there's a better narrative than that so one complication to all of this is the idea that you needed to come here to get a body. That God has a physical body and therefore you must also have a physical body and therefore you have to come to this world to get a physical body. And, and that, is, that is an important complication that I believe is resultant to William Clayton's version of some things that Joseph Smith said. There's another guy that recorded uh, Joseph's comments when he said, we came here to have a body and present it pure before God. There's another guy that recorded that exchange, and it didn't necessarily sound like that it was one of the main purposes that we came here was to get a body. It was that we would come here and inhabit lower forms of bodies. And then, and that this uh, i guess i should just read it to you hold on a second here okay i just paused for a second to pull this up um <clears throat> see there are bodies celestial and there are bodies terrestrial and there are apocryphal works that describe the um the changing of bodies from one form to another as christ comes down or as abraham goes up in the temporal narrative this is a key again uh that really ought to have been talked about in temple prep class, I think. So I don't think I'm divulging something that I ought not here. But the clothing is what is representative of the bodies. And so in the temple ritual, you get clothed with a coat of skins, and you also then get clothed in white, and then you get clothed in robes that get shifted from one side to the other. These are evidences of changing bodies as as the glory or the lights symbolizing the glory get brighter and brighter. Isn't that interesting? So when you're in a particular sphere, you have to inhabit the forms that that sphere requires. And in, the, in our case here in this world, we get a death body, a mortal body. That's what mortal literally means in Latin um, as relates to death. And it's going to die. And it's already dead, according to Samuel the Lamanite from Helaman, because it's cut off from the living world, cut off from God. And this is important because if, if you switch your perspective, you can really view 
the writings of Alma and Amulek and Alma to his son Coriantum are a little bit differently because Alma's talking about a restoration. If you're into cars and you've ever worked on a car, you know that when you restore um, something, you restore it to its former condition. And your condition here was never immortal. Okay, I know a lot of you, again, who were, were restoring cars were thinking, yeah, I'm going to go back to the way it was when it came off the line. And, and that would mean that you went back to your infant state, right? Uh, you got to, we make a lot of, uh, we, um, we make a lot of concessions mentally when we, d- when, at least back in the day when we had a chance to talk about things, these things, because I don't think these things are ever talked about anymore. Uh, in, in in Sunday school classes, we, we would make concessions and say, well, yeah, you're going to get a bo- your body back and it's going to be what you looked like when you were 23 years old, when, you're, when you were at the peak. And I think a lot of people would say, well, look, I, I'm not happy with even what my peak condition was in this world. And so it's important that we get back to the root of where all this comes from, which is out of teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, again, edited by Joseph Fielding Smith, using William Clayton's notes from a, Joseph Smith speaking. Remember again, all most of what we have from Joseph Smith is given to us secondhand from people who were Protestants formerly and had only had a few years with this great sent one, Joseph Smith. Well, in 1841, uh, this is what William Clayton said. He's that he said, he said, that which is without body, parts, and passions is nothing. And if you've if you were privileged to see the the pre-1990 temple endowment you know the what what is uh, important about teaching about a god with without a body parts and passions well, he says that which which is without body parts and passions is nothing that's a loaded statement i mean just we could spend hours talking about the passions part of that there is no other god in heaven but that god who has flesh and bones we came to this earth that we might have a body and present it pure before God in the celestial kingdom. The great principle of happiness consists in having a body. Well, in Andrew Ehat's words of Joseph Smith, which came out much later than Joseph Fielding Smith's notes, which were great at the time, but um, he reports a guy named McIntyre, William McIntyre, having recorded the conversation somewhat differently. And here's what he recalls Joseph saying. He says this, he said, He also said in testimony of the situation of the saints in the presence of God that they had flesh and bones and that that it was the agreement in eternity to come here and take on them tabernacles. Let that sink in. Because a tabernacle is a body and so is a temple, right? These are metaphors for for bodies. Uh, If you read Doctrine and Covenants section 93, I think this is very clear that that's accepted understanding. And so also lecture five of lectures on faith talks about the father being a a personage of spirit and that uh, the um, son would come and take on a tabernacle of flesh. So there's something really important here about bodies and clothing and changing clothing and restoration. That means if you're going to be restored to your former glory, or a greater glory, that means you had to have it in the first place. And we know from, again, the Doctrine and Covenants that all spirit is matter. Only 
more refined and, and to be discerned by purer eyes. Let's see if I can find that real quick so that uh, you guys don't burn me at the stake. This is uh, Doctrine and Covenants section what? Here it is. It's section 131. I was looking for it in 130. There is, well, first of all, it says it is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. Now, that's interesting. Verse 6, and then it says, There is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So God being a spirit, that means he's physical in a way, but it's not physical in the sense that we are physical. Because remember, here we are chained to the wall in Plato's cave, looking at the shadows cast by the fire behind us and the people that are manipulating the narrative. This is incredibly significant. This is why you go to the temple, to gain greater understanding about where you're at in space and time. And Adam ends up in a place called the lone and dreary world, having forgotten everything. And the first one that comes to him is somebody who has a different narrative than the father and the son. Well, okay, I'm, I could go on and, de- and spend a lot of time in the details and talking about uh, particulars here to, to try and um, support what, I, what I'm saying. And I hope that I've given enough sources that those of you that are new to this, to this discussion can see that there is relevance to it. And, and it, I don't think that this contradicts with the Book of Mormon narrative. As I've explained, when Alma and Amulek or, or Alma speaking to Corianton talks about restoration, that is a, a huge key. But we never see it that way because we've been taught that it means something different. So if you take this, what I call this cosmist or cosmos-oriented perspective and apply it to our, our scriptures, they can come alive with different understanding. You just have to be willing to apply the, the original intended meaning of those of, of the important ideas in those passages. Another good example that I get hit with from time to time is Second Nephi chapter 2, where it says it must needs be that there is opposition in all things. Remember, it doesn't say that God created that opposition. It's a very, very esoteric type of a, type of a discussion there when he goes through the, the dualities. Okay, I guess we're going to have to find it. Okay. Here I've got 2 Nephi chapter 2 right in front of me. Uh, He's talking about why there's a need for intercession. And of course, that is because we're in the fallen world. I want to point that out. And I'm going to get to, again, the narrative of the cosmos that that I think is relevant here in just a minute. But as relates to opposition, he says in verse 11, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Okay, so that's kind of like a little reminiscent of the temple where Satan or Lucifer is telling Eve, it's like, you know, virtue, vice, pleasure, pain, light, darkness. You know, this this is a, a discussion of hermetic dualities. And I, I didn't really define what I mean by hermetic. I will in a second, I guess. But this is, this is a, a discussion on dualities. It's, it's not that God created the opposition. The idea is that 
if there were no op opposing states, then there would be no wickedness or no misery or whatever. It, God would cease to be God if there wasn't anything in, in opposition to God. It doesn't mean that God created the opposition. Just by being who he is, there exist things that are in opposition and things that are not um, in, in harmony with God which is what you have to be in order to be outside of the dead world that we're in. You have to be in harmony with God, and we're not. We're fallen. So uh, that's verse 13, he gets to that. He's like, if there is no God, we are not. Neither the earth, for, for there could be no creation, neither to act nor to be acted upon, wherefore all things must have vanished away. So you've got to be careful when you read these passages because they're put into King Jamesian language, but they were pulled from Egyptian pictogram, cursive probably, probably heretic or demotic, but they derive from pictures. These are, these are ideas that are cosmist in nature. And Lehi gets to the point, he's like, from what I've read, I must suppose that an angel of God, according to that which is written, had fallen from heaven and became a devil and sought that which was evil before God. And because he had fallen, he had become miserable. And he also sought the misery of all mankind. And then he flips into the nursery tale of the garden story, and he talks about Eve being deceived by the serpent. It doesn't, it doesn't um, ruin or, or uh, negate or invalidate, is the word I'm looking for. It doesn't invalidate any of the, the reality of what's going on. It's just one way of telling about the actual reality, that, that reality that we must have a correct understanding of in order to make that understanding be the means of us obtaining knowledge. We have to have a correct understanding. We can't end up misunderstanding it and then taking as God the wrong God. That's exactly what happens in the temple ceremony. The first guy that comes to Adam and Eve is the wrong God. He is a God. He has fallen from the highest heavens and he has come here and he has, has participated in the creation and he is attempting to deceive and lead away Adam and Eve and the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And again, this is getting long. I'm two hours and 30 minutes into this. I know I keep giving you an update of where we're at, but I'm, I'm, again, I wonder what, you're, what you guys think of this. It would be nice to know if this is interesting to anybody, uh, if you want to know more along these lines or not. But there are many ancient works that describe the wrong God, the fallen God, as the demiurge, the, the little or people's creator, the, the partial creator. And they indicate that he, he and his angels created this world, and they then formed men in a way that they, uh, you know, they, gave, they formed Adam out of the clay of the earth and, and they wanted to animate him, but they couldn't. And it was the, the true God that breathed the breath of life into Adam. And then they gave Adam commandments and uh, Adam was beholden to them for a while until he was able to wake up and become uh, enlightened and enlivened by the true gods and recognize the captivity that he was in. So the, this is a very Gnostic Th that's a Gnostic angle on it that I'm telling you. There are other, there are other works that, that fill in some of the gaps here. We don't have to just be stuck with only the truncated or uh, limited narratives that we have out of the Bible or the Book of Mormon. There have been a lot of other 
instances where enlightened people have talked about these things. And they, of course, always go through the hands of men. And so then they, um, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt and follow the Lord's instructions from Doctrine and Covenants section 87. What is it? 88? It's not 88. I'm going to guess 91 here. It is uh, the Apocrypha. He says, Joseph's asking the Lord, should I translate the Apocrypha? And he says, well, there are many things contained therein that are true, and it's mostly translated correctly, and and many things therein that are not true, which are the interpolations of the hands of men. But don't translate it. It's not needful. And whoso readeth it, let him understand, for the Spirit manifests truth. So he's saying everybody should read it by the Spirit of truth, and whoever receives not the Spirit, of, not the Spirit, Whosoever receiveth not by the Spirit cannot be benefited. So don't translate it. Go read section 91. The point is, it's really interesting because that's really how you should take all Scripture. Some Scripture is less convoluted than other Scripture, but the Book of Mormon, for example, just doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the Bible. It talks about how it's truncated, how it's um, how it's modified, and um, we know that. The the people that, again, the people that gave it to us were the ones that crucified the Christ. This is a real problematic issue. Why we think certain things are scriptural, why we think they're true, what we take as scripture limits us um, from receiving further understanding. I think this is it's a significant point, and we should recognize that, for example, Hugh Nibley went far and wide. He, he was willing to look everywhere to try and understand the the actual reality and he was unwilling to limit himself to a canon knowing that it had been it had come through the hands of men and it had been modified and changed and it, that it wasn't the full story so it's a good question why do you think why do you put the type of weight you do on scripture and then of course why do you put the type of meaning into it that you do where did you get those the the understanding of those words i i should right now play the clip from the princess bride where he says you keep saying that word I, or using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's, that's the whole game at work here. We, we have been taught a certain thing by the other people that are looking at the wall in Plato's cave, the same ones that are chained to the wall. If you, if you haven't seen beyond, you're sitting chained to the wall. Or maybe you're one of the guys that's running interference between the, uh, the fire in the cave and um, the people who are chained to the wall. I mean, that's the question. Where do you fit in the allegory? I, you know, I don't necessarily consider myself to have seen outside the cave. So I think I'm probably chained to the wall looking at the cave here with you guys. And you should take what I say with a grain of salt. You should be using it and adding to your um, your understanding and, and maybe test it like Alma says to test his word. You know, if it if it if it's planted in your heart and it grows and it tastes good, then that's that's good. Then you can build from there. But if it doesn't, then you shouldn't worry about it. So uh, this is an important thing to recognize when we look at all Scripture, including the canonical Scripture. Well, all right. Let's talk about the cosmogony, the titanomachy, and the theomachy. Uh, I've, I've got, just as by way of review, I've kind of outlined that there is a technical cosmic language type of a framework that we we see at work here as relates to temple allegory and uh, narrative. And that is that we get 
certain types of ideas discussed. Generally, you have creation stories. Generally, you get wars between the gods. That's the Titanomachy and the Theomachy. And this applies to our modern literature and movies, and it applies to the ancient myths and all that stuff, and, and the, the scriptures at large also. Uh, you, you get uh, messengers sent. That's a very common thing. You'll get a ritual drama that uh, plays out. You'll, people have to be taught in the stories. They, they need to take time to learn and experience. And when they do, they often are taught by a mentor or a messenger who gives them a, a historical narrative to tell them where they came from or, or more about the world that they're caught up in. It's interesting because in the Avengers series, all the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you literally get uh, an in-the-beginning type of a language in there, and they're always talking. There's three or four times in there where somebody will give somebody else, like uh, Doctor Strange and Wong, will give Tony Stark an endowment. They'll, they'll say, in the beginning, there were six singularities. And then they start talking about the, the uh, Infinity Stones. Well, that's clearly the six creative periods. In the beginning... God created the world and he did it uh, in six days and then da 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 this is what happened. So so we even see it in, in these narratives we're getting in the modern world that they, they follow the same type of pattern. In, in Harry Potter, Hagrid comes and he, he says what Bobby always likes to talk about. You're a wizard, Harry. You know, and then Harry Potter goes through uh, not necessarily a, a ritual endowment at that point, but he, he has to learn his history and he's always getting more and more understanding about who he is and where he came from. And that's in large measure due to the messengers, the, the sent ones, the people that teach him. And he also has to go through uh, the other critical ingredients, which are study and experience. One thing that we don't really see very much in the, in the Mormon temple ceremony is that it's that Adam has to keep going back to the veil. That's, that's sort of a truncated part of it. And I, I'm not sure if that, that's been modified. I, I, granted, I've only been able to read about the pre-1990 experiences, but in the, in the temple ceremony, Adam is presented at the veil and taught about the veil. And then he, he goes to the veil and then the messenger knocks for him. And then he receives certain things, but then he steps away and he does it again. This is, this is representative of a cycle of uh, a cycle of, of under of knowledge acquisition. It's not all to be obtained in one sitting and not all to be learned in this world, even as Joseph Smith pointed out. But that pattern is demonstrated in the, in the other narratives and the other rituals and uh, festivals and things that we, we understand that there's study and experience and repetition and messengers. And of course, these things are always conveyed in language in, uh, sorry, in the language of metaphor, simile, symbol, allegory, uh, using things like hieroglyphs, sacred carvings. Uh, this is the technical framework by which these things have always been disseminated by those who are supposed to be teaching that those that are sent by God to teach that narrative. And we see Joseph Smith having done it in multiple ways. He gives you some very, very, again, hermetic or esoteric revelations in the form of things like DNC 76, section 88, section 93. Um, 
Am I missing something there? There's some stuff in section 132. I think you should be careful of that one, though, uh, that it looks like it's an amalgamation of Brigham's and Joseph's work. And you can go look into that if you want to uh, touch on that subject matter. But the provenance on that is that Brigham found that in a drawer many years later and published it after Joseph had been gone for a decade. I don't remember exactly. So part of that could definitely be uh, Brigham's work. But there are these uh, hermetic or esoteric passages that teach us higher things. And then he, he also gave us lectures on faith. And his object was to try to instill faith. Remember, again, faith being a correct understanding of the actual reality and simultaneously the means of finding it out. And so he did that, and then he moves in the Nauvoo period into trying to teach many of the same people through an allegorical temple ritual, which then became the mainstay, keeping alive Joseph Smith's teachings for well over 100 years after his death. And in the ancient world, uh, this knowledge was transmitted through myth, mythos, myth in Greek meaning the word or words, and it's generally understood to be the sacred word. And so you'd have two different types of myth in the ancient world. You'd have myths that they considered to be sacred and then myths that, that told an actu the actual story and then others that were sort of legends or uh, figurative stories, allegorical stories that just told of an uh, like an origin of, of something or of some, uh, some place or set of people or something like that. And so they, they weren't simply nursery tales in the sense of just made up with no rhyme or reason. They were, they were intended to tell the narrative in a way that those people would be able to receive it and those that were able to decipher the, the framework and, and those that were supposed to, they would then be able to gain higher knowledge, meaning greater connection to the heavens because of course the faith process would occur for them they would gain understanding about the actual reality it would inform them of their of uh, in a greater way or a more correct way of their study and experience and then they would g get knowledge and then as they planted that like the seed it, that knowledge would grow into greater knowledge. And of course, this is what uh, Abraham talked about. He wanted to be one who possessed great knowledge. And then of course, prior to that, he had said that he was, uh, he wanted to be a, f that he was a follower of righteousness. And he desired also to be one who possessed great knowledge and then to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess even greater knowledge. So I think there he's talking about study and experience. He he, he's learned certain things from people who have seen and heard or from the records that they left or from the ritual drama. I think that's why he's in Egypt is to experience certain things through that mode of teaching. And then he obtains greater knowledge and becomes a greater follower of righteousness, having knowledge, not mere belief. So in essence here, what I've done is I've outlined a lot about cosmology and, and given a lot of context in the last two hours and 45 minutes about what what it is, how it's seen, how it's talked about, why it's important, where you see it in 
in your life or where you see it in the ancient world and, and how the knowledge is transmitted and, and some of the terms and, and some of the difficulties of understanding and, and how it relates to the very first principles of the gospel. And again, I would remind you that in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, you can find a lot of discussion about the first principles. And you'll, you'll see him say, for example, on page 328, the first principles of the gospel, as I believe, are faith, repentance, baptism, etc., etc., remission of sins with the promise of the Holy Ghost. Okay, now he says that differently than he says it in the Wentworth letter. Baptism for the remission of sins with the promise of the Holy Ghost. Ponder on that for a little while. But anyway, later on, when he gets to the King Follett, when it gets to the King Follett discourse on 345, he says, these ideas are incomprehensible to some, but they are simple. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. And I will show it from the Bible. So he says it's the first principle of God to know for a certainty the character of God. And that's what I've been trying to explain is that it all goes back to faith, correct understanding of the actual reality and it has to be truth that's taught. This is why those people coming from the throne of God or coming from the presence of God with the message are so important. That's why Abraham is so important. That's why Joseph Smith is so important because they had the knowledge. They had the clear view. They saw the phenomenon, the shining things. They, through faith, were able to obtain witness and not only obtain witness, but also which was described by by um, Moroni as the heavenly gift, but also they were witnessed of. That was through that process that God vouched for them, and Jesus gives his testimony, his approval, that they can then enter the higher realms. And if you have that approval, then, of course, walking past the angels that stand as sentinels is got to be no big deal at all. You're right at home with them. So this narrative and the way that it's taught and understanding how how it has applied in times that we, in our, in our culture, at least the culture I grew up in, would never admit that it, it, it applied and, the, and to see it, see the, the tug of war between uh, these ideas in literature and um, you know, in these in these cultures and myths and whatever throughout the history of time, this is really important because this is the epic struggle. It is the struggle for the minds or the hearts, the heart minds of mankind. Because in the end, the main issue is just simply, are you going to be loyal to your f- true God, the true king of creation, the true Christ, or are you going to fall prey to a counterfeit? the great father of lies. That is the big problem. And it's, it is a big problem because this world is a, essentially is a lie. It is Plato's cave. It is the matrix. And the temple teaches us that the temple is supposed to be the nexus point that connects us to the real world. The we're in the visible world and we want to connect with the shining world. We want to see outside of it and be saved. That is the big issue here as relates to temple theology and cosmology.
All right. So I'm um, two hours and 50 minutes into this. I know you're probably tiring of me giving you the, the timestamp. And I'm wondering how many people are actually still listening. But now I'm going to tell you what I think happened, what I think the narrative is and why I think that's the case. And this may be a little bit of a repeat from the podcast we did a way back a ways back um, on war, but it comes with all this context. It, co- it should, if nothing, I have spoken for a long time trying to fill in context about why I think it's important to look beyond what we're commonly taught. And I hope that you'll take this seriously. In the beginning, the gods cosmeod the cosmos. And that's what Joseph Smith taught us. I read that quote earlier about how the first principles of man are self-existent with God and that God finding himself in the midst of the spirits and glory because he was more intelligent saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. That's simplified. That's Joseph Smith speaking to a Protestant audience trying to convey the ideas of eternal progression to them and they killed him for it definitely the the first main accusation leveled at joseph smith in the nauvoo expositor which was the newspaper that uh, came out right after this talk it uh, accused joseph of teaching the plurality of gods which he was and he admitted that in in this the very last sermon that he gave which is found in teachings of the prophet joseph smith it's uh called the sermon in the grove and it's after uh sequentially after the king follett stuff in section six of teachings of the prophet joseph smith and he only was able to speak for about 30 minutes before that particular sermon was rained out but we uh in the mormon church are technically pagan meaning paganus meaning we believe in multiple gods paganus in latin means countryside dweller or country dweller and the reason they that plurality of gods is associated with the country dwellers is because when the Orthodox Church took hold and they had solidified this monotheism, the people in the city adopted them, their practices very easily, but the people who were in the countryside, they kept up the traditions of the, uh, of the older religions and they had more colorful stories about the the titanomachy and the theomic or the titanomachy and the uh the cosmogony than the catholic church had or the orthodox church so it became pejorative that if you're a pagan it's pejorative i'm not talking about mormons being crazy devil worshiping pagans i'm talking about us being polytheistic we believe in a father and a mother let's just get that right out there and a son and a daughter and many sons and daughters but most definitely uh, we have a Godhead that is <laughs> inclusive of women and generally it's spoken of in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to be polite in polite circles, I guess. I don't know, but that's not what we actually believe. We believe in a polytheistic Godhead, not a Trinitarian Godhead. And uh, definitely there would be a lot of evangelical Christians or detractors out there who would get a hold of this podcast and say, yes, finally a Mormon admits it, that they believe in the plurality of gods and they're, see, they're evil. And I'm telling you that no, 
that is the secret sauce. That is the cool stuff. That's what makes this so exciting is that we're the ones that believe in the hero's journey. We're the ones that believe that God is not trifling with us and that in the beginning, the gods, the council of the gods, whatever, in the first council, that the gods were there and they set up a system whereby the rest of us could become like them. That the relationship that we have with these gods places us in a situation to advance in knowledge, just like Joseph Smith explained. And that knowledge is power and the glory of God is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. And man is made of light and truth if he wants to be. And uh, there it is right there. In the beginning, that's what happened. The next concept to understand is that there have been multiple councils. Anytime a world is created, and this is what was happening in the harmonious cosmos where the gods were helping the, the great, of course, there was a, a most high God. That is a real thing. So when we say the gods cosme the cosmos or created or organized the, the system, the system of progression, there would definitely be a hierarchy. This is explained to Abraham in, in chapter three of Abraham. He goes through this long discourse on the, the heavenly bodies the uh, the stars and the planets and how they all govern each other and they they reckon their times from each other and that they're one is brighter than the other and then he says it's the same with the intelligences that were created before the world was or that were organized I believe is the way he puts it because you know intelligence was neither created nor made neither can it be he 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 explains that when you see two intelligences together one is going to be brighter than the other and he said and he says to Abraham I the Lord am brighter than them all. That's just the way it is. And, you know, we can ponder, as the song, If You Could Hide a Kolob, suggests, we can ponder the, um, uh, the beginning when gods began to be, but it's a, it's a little bit, <laughs> you know, you got to realize you're limited here in the, in the fallen world. And he, he says it, man is not capable of making things known. these things known. They're only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows upon those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege. We've got to admit, we can't be so arrogant as to not admit that we are limited here in the fallen world, and there are perhaps things we can't understand about the eternal worlds. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but we should certainly not just throw everything away and say, well, it can't be that. It can't be that gods are progressing because where is the first God? Well, the way Joseph explained it is that in the beginning, the gods created the system. And that is the allegory, or that, that is expressed in allegory in many ways. And in our culture, it's expressed through the creation metaphor. And now in the New Age, it's expressed through the metaphor of the infinity stones, in, a, in the story that is probably as widely known as Christianity now, taught by the Marvel people, uh, Marvel Studios. So that's what happened. There was a harmonious system created and progression was occurring. There were gods that existed in time spaces that were higher and time spaces that were lower. And this is drawn out in what we would call the Ptolemaic cosmos. And if you want to just imagine in your mind a drawing with the right side of a piece of paper that you would do the plan of salvation on, just that with the celestial and the terrestrial on it. No telestial. Just put the celestial and the terrestrial on it. Have the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon. That is the harmonious cosmos. There is a, a higher heaven 
and a Terra, an Earth system, place where worlds are created and where intelligences go through progression and they progress. And it's a living world. Uh, I don't know exactly how they would move on, whether they'd move on through a mechanism like death or whatever. But in the harmonious cosmos, there is no death or loss of memory in the way that we experience it here in this world of suffering, in this lowest world down. And so if you look at this as a vertical layout and you look at it as a uh, present tense, current tense, you know, type of a thing that I am down here at the very bottom and God is up at the very top. That is how the scriptures are set up. They're set up so that you can say that God came from upon high and that he condescended down below all things and that he went back up on high. That That is really how that ought to be looked at. And that explains a lot of the, the directional metaphor of up and down and a fall and, a, and an anastasis, a resurrection, a re-standing up or a, an anastasis, a lifting up of the individual as they get out of the fallen world. Well, anyway, in a, in a harmonious system in the, in the beginning or before this world, there were only the celestial and the terrestrial. And this makes sense because terrestrial means of or relating to the earth or earths, terra, Mediterranean. It's the sea in the middle of the earth. Uh, Terra, it's Latin for earth, okay? So I don't think I have to really belabor that, but for some reason I am. And uh, so that's what was going on is there were progressive uh, eons working to refine the intelligences so that they could dwell in glorious, fiery existence with the fiery beings. And there were beings at every level of that. And it's like a, a staircase, like William Blake depicted in his painting of a stairway and I believe that the title of that is Jacob's Ladder now the interesting thing about Blake's Jacob's Ladder is that you have Adam there on the ground lying down asleep and so he is actually not just depicting the harmonious cosmos he's depicting the cosmos now that it has the fallen world integrated into it and so getting back to our narrative here this system was going on and people were progressing such to the point that Jesus had progressed to the highest level. That would be considered the seventh level of the uh, celestial heaven, the high heaven. And the beings there, if they're men, are called, uh, they have the title of morning star. And there was another son of the morning there at the highest level of the celestial heavens. And this is a really important inflection point. See, this is where we're going to talk about the problem of evil. And again, as I alluded to earlier, this is Lucifer. And he in, well, uh, taking a sidestep here, for example, in the Greek myth, you have Cronus, who is a, essentially a heavenly personification of Lucifer. He overthrows his father, Uranus, and then he is, of course, overthrown by his son, Zeus. And so in the Greek system, you get sort of an inverted story of how the gods of this world came to be. And it, and it makes sense because Zeus is pretty much a capricious, uh, womanizing, <laughs> essentially fallen god. But he, he rules sort of arbitrarily here on the earth. And that's not really cool. Well, that's not the way we think about God. There's a, there's a correct and 
or sorry, there's an incorrect and inefficacious mode of belief. If you take Zeus in that form, as we understand him today, to be your God, you've you've taken him to uh, you've taken the wrong God as God because of your corrupted system. So, getting back to Lucifer here, we uh, we have a problem in that the question is why do we have evil in the world? And remember, in the uh, generally accepted system that I come from, the idea is that God intended for us to have that evil so that we could progress, that it was necessary for us to encounter that opposition, quote-unquote, to progress. And so God is responsible for that evil and for all this suffering and all the, all the garbage that's going on down here. And what I'm trying to tell you is that that is not the case. Cosmologically, that is an untenable situation. And I think that it leads to a lot of the Mormons... Uh, subconsciously because that's the way they understand it it's like well this isn't fair here in this world and it's not right what's going on and i don't see how god could ever judge and i don't like the idea that it's a a one and done situation and uh you know things are just completely running amok down here and i i just don't i think that subconsciously they just can't um continue to hold that in their minds and so they people who are more open-minded and more willing to change their minds and are really searching for truth rather than just willing to rely on dogmatic n- narratives and, ex- and expressions of quote-unquote faith, they then get bumped out of that system and that mode of belief. And therefore, because that doesn't work for them, then they want they end up throwing out Joseph Smith and the plurality of gods and the and eternal progression entirely. And then a lot of times just throwing out, throwing out their belief in God. And I think that's really unfortunate. But really, it does all come down to this narrative and the question of the justice of God, the, the theodicy question, the problem of evil. Why would a loving God do this? And why, and it, why is he responsible for all of this? Well, the ancient, as we, the ancient world, as we just discussed with the example of uh, Greece or the Greek myths, they, they didn't really have that type of a problem because... The, it was simply the passion of the other god. It was the the personality of the other gods that caused evil. It's the evil gods. Evil beings are the s- source of evil, not necessarily Eve for taking of the fruit or the father god for putting us in this situation. They they actually rebelled. They they overthrew and they then took over this creation. And the big question is why. And in the Mormon system, the one of the big questions that comes up is well, why would Lucifer? knowing that if he just stuck with the program, he could become a god like the Father God. What was it? Was it impatience? Was it that he, like, literally, like, really he thought that if he just presented his plan to the Father God that he could usurp the agency of mankind, that he could not only uh, bring everything to a resolution appropriately, when, by the way, as we've discussed in the, in the narrative that I've laid out, there is not a need for a resolution yet because there was no plan of coming into the fallen world proposed. We were already going through experiences before this world. So why would, why would we need Lucifer to come in and, and upset the apple cart uh, asking for the glory of God when there was no real inflection point? There was no need for a redeemer at this point because nobody needed to be saved. Everybody was going through progression, going through refinement in a safe manner. So so anyway, but getting back to the the generally accepted narrative, the idea is that Lucifer should have just been patient or he was just way too 
uh, grabby, too greedy, and he wanted the glory of the Father, and he could never have that, and so therefore he uh, gets cast down to the earth. And and that's, I think, again, this is along the lines of Hugh Nibley's nursery tales. That doesn't quite work when a when a person starts to complement the or starts to contemplate these things as an adult. A lot of the a lot of the narrative doesn't quite make sense. Because why would why would Lucifer do that? He could become a glorious, fiery being, right? If he just stuck with the program. Well, I think that's part of the problem. Is that's not what happened. That's not the narrative. That's that's an ineffective, um, inaccurate understanding that's going to lead us to sort of a an unbelief. A, 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 it can't it can't create faith if we if we think of it that way. That God is responsible. And that Lucifer just simply, <laughs> for reasons unknown to us, he <laughs> blew it. Or that, or that God was angry with him for proposing that plan. I mean, why, why not just say, you know, <laughs> no, you can't have it that way. You're going down anyway. But no, ra- rather, it seems like it makes the response of the Father God quite uh, heavy-handed. And uh, the narrative I'm about to present gives us a little bit of a, a different perspective. But first, let's talk about Moses chapter 4, because I think this is where we get the, this understanding. In uh, The Pearl of Great Price, the chapter heading says, How Satan Became the Devil, and He Tempts Eve, Adam and Eve Fall, and Death Enters the World. This, I think, is really problematic. The, uh, the chapter summary, I think, is, is inaccurate. And... But that's that's how we commonly understood it. It starts off in verse one. Now, by the way, this is after chapter three, which talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. So we've finally gotten to the garden, and it says they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. And then we get into verse one of chapter four, and it says, "I, the Lord God, spoke unto Moses, saying that, saying colon, that Satan." It's interesting language. And we get some really interesting language in Moses. For example, in chapter 1, where, because we're working with titles here, by the way. We're working with, um, we're working with a very esoteric text, I think. So we've got to be careful about taking Moses as the definitive replacement, r- replacement for the Genesis account as sort of a, an authoritative, literal understanding of what happened in the garden. I think this is a very allegorical nursery tale that we we find some interesting esoteric ideas here in Moses. And one of the first ones is throughout the book of Moses, you have the Lord God, which is essentially a title of Christ being conflated with the most high God, the father. And he talks about his only begotten. And it's like, it's like an artifact of the, the Jewish apostasy where they combined the father Amon and the son, son Amon or they, they combine them into the same Yahweh figure or Jehovah figure. And so we see a remnant of that here in the, in the whole book of Moses. And, but it's, but it's interesting because uh, we, we get some really strange things in here. For example, and, and this alerts us to the idea that we're dealing with sort of temple actors, temple, temple titles or, or uh, name titles in an esoteric sense says in verse 33, uh, 32, and by the word of my power have I created them, talking about the worlds, um, which which is my only begotten son, that's the word of his power, who is full of grace and truth. 
and worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purposes, and I and by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. And then th- verse 34, And the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. What does that mean? <laughs> Adam is many. Very, very, very esoteric stuff. And then you get to Adam and Eve being naked at the end of chapter three, and they're not ashamed. And then we get to the first part of chapter four, where he says, and I, the Lord God spake unto Moses saying that Satan whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten is the same, which was from the beginning. Okay. So that shows Satan as a name title because he, you could read that as saying, and the, I, the Lord God, spake unto Moses, saying that Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten. But that's not how it's written. It's written with the start of a sentence, the start of a quote. He says he, he spoke to Moses, saying, colon, that Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten, is the same which was from the beginning. And he came before me, saying, but it doesn't say this was in the beginning. It just says, he came before me, saying, behold, here am I, send me, and I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind. Well, wasn't Satan already his son? I mean, in the commonly accepted story, we're all God's children, and this is, this is really problematic. So, here am I, send me, and I will be thy son. That either means that there's a bigger picture at work here, or uh, that this is a, a name title, to be the son, or the only begotten son. And he says, I will redeem all mankind, that one soul shall not be lost, and surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. But behold, my beloved son which was my beloved and chosen from the beginning, said unto me, Father, thy will be done and the glory be thine forever. Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him, and also that I should give unto, mine, unto him mine own power by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. And then the record says in verse 4, And he became Satan, although it already called him that Satan, Yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men, and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. And then it goes on and talks about him uh, influencing the serpent or putting it into the heart of the serpent, and rather than him being the serpent. But here we have him uh, described as father of the blind, uh, father of lies, uh, well, it says he's the father of all lies to deceive and to blind men and lead them captive. And again, since we're in the realm of name titles, this is really important because there are Gnostic works which name the Demiurge as Samael, which means God of the blind or the blind God. And so we can see a relationship here. We can see where perhaps these stories once were merged and then took a, a deviated from each other. And we've got to wonder what was the intent of the people that made the changes to those works. Um, Regardless, let's get back to the narrative here. In the Christian narratives, we have a really important document called the Interrogatio Johannes, or it's also called the Secret Supper of John, or sometimes the Book of John the Evangelist. And I think this is really important because it addresses the same content matter. You have uh, John, the beloved, who is discussing the cosmology, the cosmos. The he does he's discussing cosmology with the Lord, the study of the cosmos, 
which is essentially time and space and, and what we're all caught up in here. And he says to the Lord, Lord, before Satan fell, in what splendor did he attend the Father? And the Lord said, Among the virtues of heaven and at the throne of the Father invisible, he was regulator of all things and sat with my Father. He, it was, who presided over the virtues of heaven and those who attended the Father. His power descended from the heavens even to hell and arose unto the throne of the Father invisible. He had wardship of, of those splendors which were above all the heavens. So here we've got a lot more detail, and, and I find it interesting that we are so... <laughs> interesting. I've got to figure out better words to use. I find it really intriguing that we, the culture that I come from, is so disinterested in more understanding about the narrative because here you've got it f fairly verbosely explained. I mean, like you've got this Gnostic, it's usually considered a Gnostic text. It's a Cathar scripture. A lot of people disbelieve it because of uh, the provenance because they only find it uh, going back to like uh, the early Middle Ages. And it's found in southern France, which is, of course, where Mary Magdalene and John the Beloved fled to. <laughs> okay. Of course, I, I get that most of you believe that John the Beloved... Um, well, I, I got to know what you think about John the Beloved, but he, the last that the, the canonical world sees him is at, at the island of Patmos, Book of Revelation, Asia Minor, and that we don't see him after that. But there is, of course, the tradition in Mormon theology that it, he still remains here on the earth, like the three Nephites. Anyway, here we have a text where John, queer, the, the beloved disciple, the one most trusted by the Lord, the one who the Lord entrusted his mother to when he left the world. He asks, Lord, what, and, and this would have probably been a, a, a post-crucifixion conversation. Lord, before Satan fell, what was going on? And the Lord answers him and tells him all this stuff. So he, he continues the story and he says, and this is, this is the story of, of Satan deciding to rebel. This is him deciding he's going to make a play as if it were uh, Hamlet's father's brother or Scar in The Lion King is how you probably know him. Or, or And I haven't seen uh, Game of Thrones, but this sounds like the, the show Game of Thrones where he, he's going to make a play for the throne of the father. And so you've got to, as an adult, we really ought to think of it in more... Uh, more complex terms than just what we read in the nursery tale. He says, the Lord says that he had all, he had all this responsibility and it says he pondered wishing to place his throne upon the clouds and to be like the most high. And then it describes him going down out of the most high levels of the heavens. He says to the, to an angel seated upon the air, he says, open to me the portals of the air. And the angels opened up for them and he passed down and, and he saw angels who guarded the waters to whom he said, open to me the portals of the waters. And the angels opened it up to him and he descended further and he found the whole earth covered with water. And walking beneath this, he came upon two fish lying upon the waters. And these were yoked together and they bore up the whole earth at the bidding of the father invisible. Now, don't worry about the language, the father invisible. If you're going to start studying this stuff, you got to realize people describe the most high and the, the mother and the... 
the heavenly beings in, in ways that you might be unfamiliar with. God the Father, as Joseph Smith explained, was someone that we could approach and know, but the, he is invisible because he's hidden in the deep. He is not accessible to us from this world. The, one, the God that we interact with that, that can save us, of course, is Jesus Christ. And if you're going to see the Father, you've got to get out of this world. So that's an important distinction because he's, he's far removed. Well, anyway, Satan goes down. And remember the, the picture I hope you painted in your mind of a celestial kingdom, a, a circular world up there, the heavens, and then uh, below that, terra, terrestrial, this terrestrial er, area. And so this is what Satan um, encounters. He comes down to the bottom of it all. He's, he's taking a tour of the cosmos. And he says he, he saw these fish that were burying up the earth. And again, this is very allegorical. And he says, these were yoked together and they bore up the whole earth at the bidding of the Father invisible. And passing down further still, he found great clouds holding the massed waters of the sea and descending lower, he found his hell, which is the Gehenna of fire. But thereafter, he was unable to go further down because of the flame of fire, which was raging. Now, this is, this is very typical um, hermetic or esoteric or uh, even orthodox discussion it's very enochian it relates kind of the to the enochian uh, the book of enoch view on what the what the invisible unseen worlds are that we we see and so they're described as lakes of fire like in this case you've got the lake of fire and brimstone i believe which is talked about but in other in other cultures this could be considered the the waters of chaos or the waters of noon which are fiery waters which of course that's where god um, goes to get the uh, uh, the creative materials to to create order out of chaos. So these these are just parts of the system that the gods draw from. Go read Hunibly's Treasures in the Heavens and think of it allegorically this way: that the the elements need to be formed. And again, you've got to think symbolically and allegorically, or you're gonna. Um, you're going to get way off. And I know, if you, again, if you're listening this long, you're already way off into the weeds with me. So it's, it's no big deal. But uh, some of us really love this esoteric allegorical stuff because it's supposed to teach us about us and who we are. Well, anyway, Satan retraced his path, filling himself with evil plots. He ascended to the angel who was over the air and to the angel who was over the waters and said unto them, all things are mine, period. If you hearken to me, I will place my throne over the clouds and I will be like the most high. I will bear the waters up above this firmament and I will gather the other waters into wide seas. After that, there shall not be water upon the face of the whole earth. And this is metaphorical, okay, guys? Because remember, the elements of the veil in the ancient world are earth, water, air, and fire. These, these were the, it's like their periodic table of elements. So you are made of earth, water, air, and fire in a way, okay? And again, he says, I shall reign with you forever and ever. Thus he spoke to the angels. He ascended to the very heavens. Now he's back up to the celestial kingdom. So he was in the Terra element, and now he's back to the celestial kingdom or the heavens, celestial meaning heaven, okay? So he ascends to the third heaven, subverting the angels of the Father invisible, saying to each of them, 
So he's going through the levels of the heavens and he's, and he's renegotiating their contracts. He says, how much dost thou owe thy Lord? The first answered, a hundred barrels of oil. And he said to him, take the bill and sit down and write 50. And he said to another, now you, how much dost thou owe thy Lord? And that person says, a hundred quarters of wheat. And he says, take thy bill and sit down quickly and write 80. And to the other angels, he ascended with like speech. He ascended even to the fifth heaven, seducing the angels of the Father invisible. And then he stopped from getting back to his former station. And a voice came from the throne of the Father saying, What dost thou, O thou devoid of hope, subverting the angels of the Father? Contriver of sin, do quickly what thou hast planned. Okay, and then, he, and then the Father <laughs> says to his angels, Take from the angels who hearkened unto him the garments, the thrones, and the crowns. And then the, the vestments or the clothing and the thrones and the crowns were taken from all the angels who followed Satan. Okay, now don't be too worried. I'm going to leave you a link to this text so that you can go check it out online if you want to. But I, again, I'm flabbergasted at how disinterested my culture has been in something so incredibly significant as this. We have a situation that almost sounds like that parable of the unjust steward in the uh, in the New Testament where the steward goes and renegotiates some of the contracts. In fact, let's have a look at that. Okay, I know we're going on and on and on here, but I can't help myself. And, and this is an aside, but I find this really interesting because you've got this parable in Luke chapter 16. It's the only place I think that it's found in the Bible. And the, this is there's a certain rich man that has a steward who was accused of wasting the, his Lord's goods, <laughs> which is interesting, right? And um, the Lord calls him to him and says, what is this I hear of you? I want you to account for your stewardship because you can no longer be steward. What does this sound like? Does this not sound like what we just read? And then the steward says, well, what am I going to do? And so therefore he goes out and he renegotiates these contracts so that he can raise some quick cash is what it sounds like. But I'm, I'm not sure uh, that this is the the correct uh, version of this narrative here. I think that the interrogatio Johannes might be better. This may have been changed early on because listen to what this says. It says, uh, the Lord commended, after he'd renegotiated all the contracts, he says, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. That is, a, I think, a, a contradictory or a false statement right there. That the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And he, and he says, furthermore, I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And the you there, I think, is he's talking about the children of light. He's saying, do your best with the mammon of unrighteousness or the, the riches of unrighteousness, the treasures of this world, because so that when you fail, the children of light will receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, but he that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. So if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And there he's talking about the true uh, treasures of the heavens. If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who's going to give you that which is your own. And then he goes on and says, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. A very contradictory 
uh, explanation there. I mean, really try to wrap your mind around that. But that that's the closest analog we have to the Interrogatio Johannes. And I think the Interrogatio Johannes is, is really amazing because we're talking about what uh, Satan was involved in. And, and it just blows my mind. This has been around since the mid-1800s in, in a more um, available format. It was first published in the 17th century, but and it goes way back to the Middle Ages, talking about the Interrogatio Johannes. But uh, we just seem totally disinterested in this narrative, and I find it to be exceptionally significant as relates to the conditions that caused the fall. Because what we had was a uh, clandestine attempt to take over the entire system. It was nothing less than that. Let's let's pick this up again here from uh, right after we, we just talked about how the father stopped Satan at the fifth level and took away from him his powers and took the, the clothing, the thrones, and the crowns from the angels who followed him. And John again queries the Lord, and he says, when Satan fell, because see, he hadn't fallen yet, in what place did he dwell? And the Lord says, well, because of his self-exaltation, my father decreed his transformation, withdrawing from him the light of his glory. And then he uh, describes... Um, how Satan loses his stewardship and is cast down. And the then Satan says to the Lord, to the Father, um, well, first, first uh, the Lord narrates and he says, falling down from heaven, Satan could find no peace in this firmament, nor could those who are with him. And he besought the Father saying, I have sinned, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And the, the Lord God, the Father, was moved with pity for him and gave him peace to do what he would until the seventh day. Okay. Again, different perspective on the, the days of creation or the, the totality of the, the existence we, we have here. We have a, a time period created an epoch, an eon, something that uh, was allowed to happen. And then it describes Satan creating the world, creating the physical world. It says he took his seat above the firmament and he gave uh, command to certain angels and separated waters and commands to, he, he, he commands the, uh, let's see, how does it say? He says, stand upon the two fish and the angel raised the earth upwards with his head and dry land appeared and was. So he's creating the earth or, or forming the dry land on the earth. And then he um, commands the earth to bring forth living things, animals, trees, herbs, uh, the sea to bring forth fish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is amazing stuff. Now, this isn't the only account, all right? This is just one that's really descriptive. And I'm trying to limit myself here. And I know you're, you're out there thinking, well, why am I still listening to this? This is just going on and on and on. But there is a lot of material out there that we can draw from to try and form our opinion about the Titanomachy. Here we have an element of it, right? We have this, this, uh, Cutting Down of Satan. Uh, we have the Discourse on Abaton by Timothy of Alexandria. I believe that's who it was. Yeah, he was a patriarch of Alexandria. And this is uh, fourth century. So it's pretty old. Describes the feud between um, Satan and Adam, which we're going to talk about in just a second here. 
because, and, and that's important. Hugh Nibley talks about the, the feud between Satan and Adam in the essay, The Expanding Gospel, which you can find in Nibley on the Timely and the Timeless. Because see, there's a feud be- between the Lord Jesus and Satan, but then there's also a feud between Adam or Michael and Satan that's very significant. And so that's another clue that the interrogatio Johannes isn't fully complete. Of course, neither are our canonical scriptures, and and all these things have been modified a little bit. But uh, the fact that that Satan only made it up to the fifth level is is significant also because that's where you find uh, people like Adam and Eve that are at a level high enough where they can go out and, and people the worlds. So the, the discourse on Abaton is significant uh, for this reason. Now, don't get me wrong. This is, this is, uh, this passage that I'm about to read you is sort of not in, in the same context. It's, it's right after God creates Adam. And he says, uh, when Adam had risen up, remember Adam was asleep on the ground, right? He cast himself down before the father saying, my Lord and my God, thou hast made me to come into being from a state in which I did not exist. So this sounds a little bit ex nihilo, but it's like he causes, he causes Adam to become greater than, than he was. And then the father set upon him a, a throne and a crown of glory and put a scepter in his hand. Now this is, this is the father giving Adam dominion. And he, he sa- it says he made every order of his angels in the heavens come and worship him, whether angel or archangel. And they all wanted to worship him except for Lucifer. But it's funny, the way they, the way they, lo- they, the way they worshiped Adam is they say, Hail thou likeness and image of God. This is the one like unto God. Mikael means like God. This is Adam. This is in the likeness of God. And the father is telling Lucifer, come thou thyself and worship my image and likeness. Now, worship here is maybe a strong word. And again, this might seem overly Catholicized or overly, uh, again, this is the mid fourth century AD. So 300s AD is where, where they think this came from. But it may, it may seem a little formal, but you know, here, here you can see a, a story of, God has this great creation and he wants all of the angels to come and pay homage to it and, and, and pay respect to this being Adam, who's so great. And of course, Lucifer being of great pride, drew himself up in a shameless manner and said, really Adam should come and worship me because I, I came into being, or I existed before he came into being. He, I was greater in the creation. I'm, I'm ahead of him in the creation. I'm at a higher level is what it, what it's saying there. And then it explains how when uh, Lucifer refused to allow uh, Adam to have dominion and refused to be subordinate to Adam or Michael, who he is in in his heavenly persona here, then the the angels are commanded by the Father to come and cut him down. They cut the powers from him. They cut cut his uh, body and they... um, take away from him all of his heavenly power. This is the discourse on Abaton. Again, Timothy of Alexandria is where you can find that. Well, the reason I bring this up is because here we have more that we can add to the story. First of all, we see Adam in the heavens. And I know that this is sort of out of context, but track with me here. Adam existed before the world and 
again, man is co-eternal with God and we've been progressing. And so we have a, a variety of beings, a sociality in the heavens, and it's been going on for eons and many, many cycles. And the Savior's at the top level and Satan also, and Satan covets the throne and he decides to, t- to enact a plan to take control of the whole system. He wants the glory. He wants the power. So he goes down and he tries to take control of those beings who give dominion, who, who, who pay homage, who pay reverence to the Father, the glory of God, right? He tries to take all of that stuff. And that, therefore, would be the agency of mankind and or of angel kind, even if you want to think of it that way. All the beings that are sons and daughters of God. And he gets to the fifth level and he stopped. And there we have a confrontation with Adam. And Hunibly also talks about this in greater detail and quotes, uh, I believe it's an Essene text, the war scroll, the war between the sons of dark and the sons or the sons of light and the sons of dark. And uh, how Satan is angry with Adam and cries out and, and uh, explains that he is um, going to make life hell for the children of Adam and Eve. He says, Adam, I was cast forth from my glory because of thee. Now, remember, the, the discourse on Abaton explains the casting out or the cutting down. And I was cast forth from my glory because of thee, and behold, I have caused thee to be expelled from paradise, and because thou didst cause me to become a stranger to my home in heaven, know that I shall never cease to contend against thee and all those who shall come after thee until I have taken them all down into Amente with me. So we have a sort of a, a, a movie-esque, a narrative-esque narrative. We have, a, we have a story here that tells what's going on with Satan. He first is jealous. He first is covetous. He's first envious. He's, he's going to try to, he, he sees the throne and he wants to set his, his throne above the clouds, above the most high God. And then he goes and takes a tour of the cosmos and tries to, uh, shift the loyalty of the beings in the cosmos to him. Now, this is why Bobby and I have often talked about a loyalty test. This is so significant because it all boils down to loyalty in the cosmos, whether you're going to give loyalty to Satan, whether you love Satan more or you love God more. And this this is the big problem. And our story, you know, continues with Satan coming back up, getting thwarted in his plan. And, and so far, it's correctable. And in the, in the text we just read, Satan, of course, is cast out. And in, in one of the texts, he, he, he participates in creation. In the other text here, uh, the discourse on Abaton, he's cut down. And, of course, we have his angry cry from the scroll, from the war scroll, where uh, Adam, meeting Satan in the lone and dreary world, is told that the war is on and Satan's going to destroy him and all of his posterity. So, so here we have... Uh, a narrative that we can also match up with our truncated scriptures in uh, in the Pearl of Great Price, for example. You've got the Book of Abraham that tells a little bit about the creation, and that's really where we should pick up the narrative here because it's uh, the most significant. In Abraham chapter 3, after Abraham is shown all the intelligences that were before the world was, it says that uh, in verse 23 or 22, he says there were many that were noble and great ones. 
meaning they came from the high heavens, like Adam and Christ. And the Lord God stood in the midst of them, and he said, These will I make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. That means they were loyal. They did not need to be tested. Listen to what it says next. It says, He, the Lord God, said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And then it says, And there stood one among them that was like unto God. This is Adam. He's the t- that's his title, like unto God. <laughs> okay? And he said unto those that were with him, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. This is, a, this is the, the recommendation that we create a, prove, a testing world, a, a loyalty test world, a terrestrial world, a garden state world, one that's connected to the heavens, one that's still living and growing. Not a death world, not a fallen world. It's not yet fallen. It's just a, a place where loyalty can be tested. And Adam was given dominion. We know, we know this because in verse 27 it says, The Lord said, Whom shall I send? The Lord, Jesus. Whom shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man. We know this isn't the Son of Man. This is one like unto the Son of Man. Again, this is Adam. Son of Man is a title of Christ, and many of the sent ones received the title Son of Christ, but that's definitely not a title of the Father. And that man, that one like unto the Son of Man said, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. So here you have the true king of our creation, the Christos, the anointed one. And that's why, again, this is why he's anointed. That's what Christos or Christ means, is anointed one. That's why kings and queens and priests and priestesses have always been anointed with oil, is to pattern them after the great anointed one, the true anointed one, the true king of creation. He uh, gives dominion to Adam. He sets, a, sets him on a throne, gives him a crown, and gives him a scepter. That's what we saw in the discourse on Abaton. And then Satan is angry. He doesn't want to be subordinate to Adam. Well, I've got one more text to throw into the mix here because the big question is, how did the, how did the world fall? And it was, was it really Eve's fault? And I don't think so. Uh, I think what happened was that when they left the heavens, there was a mutiny, like on a ship or somebody taking over in a military sense. And, that, and the people that took over were... Um, Satan and his angels. And again, we're piecing together certain truncated and modified narratives. But if the devil had something to do with creation, he had to be there in the formation of the world. And there are many texts that talk about him having something to do with creation. And if uh, Eve didn't, and and you're going to have to just look, it's the, the book of Enoch is the thing you need to read. If you, if you believe Eve partook of the fruit literally and that she caused the fall because the father and the son God put her in an untenable situation and sort of forced her to sin then or transgress in that manner, then, you know, you probably should have stopped listening a long time ago. So the book of Enoch is the text that really talks about the, the, the devil and his angels Per- perverting the creation, giving too much knowledge, uh, causing things to run amok and whatnot. And that, of course, is the Older Testament, the older um, 
the older record that predates the Old Testament, uh, upon which a lot of Christ's teachings were were based. And and you can uh, you can read bo- uh, both Hugh Nibley and Margaret Barker on this subject. They both have done a lot of work on it. Hugh Nibley's book Enoch the Prophet is important, and uh, Margaret Barker's books The Lost Prophet. Enoch, the lost prophet, and uh, the Older Testament are, are very important because it wasn't. I hope I'm not saying more than I should here, but come on, Eve. This is always about subjugating women. Eve taking the fruit and uh, <laughs> causing the creation to fall, making the terrible choice, allowing herself to be subordinate to Adam, or uh, in 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 the way that you know the the way that we've always perceived that women are somehow uh, inferior. It's just, <laughs> you, you, it's probably a story written by men in about the uh, 800s, 700s BC, maybe maybe 1000 BC by, by Hebrews that wanted to change the narrative that became the Jews, right? The, the, the apostate elements of that group that, that gave us modifications to this, this metaphor so that we would be uh, down on women. And what did they do? They combined all the gods into one god, and they got all got rid of all the women. There are no women in the in the Jewish pantheon. There's not a pantheon. It's a it's a mono, monotheon. Isn't that, isn't that monotheon? That's I guess the way we would uh, say it in the Greek. So uh, back back to the story here. The last text I want to read to you is uh, a little bit from a, a I believe it's a Manichean text. It's called uh, the ships. It's called the Psalm of Thomas, and this is about um, sailing ships, which is a an important metaphor you see in a lot of ancient cultures, relative to going from one realm to another and establishing your planting, as Hugh Nibley called it, uh, establishing your world or your your civilization on dry land somewhere. This is an important metaphor. And of course, Hugh Nibley used this and discussed it in the uh, essay, Treasures in the Heavens, which again is a, is a really good one to read. As much Read it as much as you can stand because you've got to go through this stuff over and over and over again until you shift your perspective in such a way that you can begin to see the bigger picture and, and see what's been going on and and put together the story. Of course, always seeking uh, inspiration from God on on your understanding. Well, uh, here's what it says. The ship whose keel is the dawn, the ropes of light are they that are on it. Its helmsmen are glorious ones. Its crew are clothed with the dawn. They that bring the treasures of the mighty one that is upon it, immeasurable and countless, laden with the wealth of the living ones, which can never be counted. I know not where the son of evil saw it, He took thieves and sent them to it. The thieves poured upon the ship. They drew it out in the middle of the sea. They wounded its helmsmen. They that were entrusted with the treasure, they were endangered. They seized the treasure of the mighty one, which is measureless and countless. They stole the wealth of the mighty one, which is measureless and countless. They stole the wealth of the living ones, which can never be counted. The treasure which they stole from it, they spread and scattered into their worlds. They took roots and fragrant grasses and planted them in their land. They filled it. They took the barrels and jewels, nailed them and fixed them to their firmament. The hungry ate and were sated. The prostrate ones arose. The naked were clothed. 
They bound diadems upon their heads. The poor became rich and gloried in things that were not theirs. And the, the report reached the mighty one that an enemy had overtaken his ship and that its helmsmen were wounded and they, they were entrusted with the treasure and were endangered. Okay, you can, you can finish this. I read about half of it. But look, there's a mutiny. There was a mutiny. The creation was taken over by the evil ones. And they finished the creation. They perverted it and caused it to fall. And when Adam and Eve transgressed, the word is always used, the word transgress is always used because I think it's a hint to us that, and, and we argue over this, and we have, we've got, gone through mental jumping jacks in, in my culture to try to excuse Adam for falling and Eve for taking of the fruit. But it's so important because the word in Latin, transgress, means, well, it's our word transgress, of course, means to, to uh, sin or uh, cross a boundary, right? That, it, do, it does literally mean that, to overstep your bounds. But we always think of it as sin in the religious sense. But we ought to think it in, of it in its more, most Latin etymological sense, which is trans, cross, and gressus, to go, to go across a boundary, to cross a boundary, which... If you think again back to the model I had you create in your mind where you have a celestial kingdom at the top, a terrestrial world in the middle, well, if that terrestrial world fell and became out of harmony, then there would be a boundary there, the cut-off boundary. Because remember, we're cut off from the Lord. We're cut off from the living world. This is what, again, the Book of Mormon prophets repeatedly are attempting to explain to us, that we're cut off from the living world. And so, therefore, there's a veil, a boundary, a, a demarcation point. There's a cherubim and a flaming sword placed to guard the way to the tree of life so that these uh, evil ones can't get back into the tree of life. Now, And then the tree of life is an important metaphor because the tree is where all the, tr- the going betweens, the, it's where the transportation happens. Uh, this is uh, most visually most stunningly depicted in metaphor in modern times by the Bifrost in the Avengers movies. The Bifrost in the Norse mythology is the rainbow bridge that connects the tree to the different realms. The tree of Drossel has different realms on it, and people travel to these different realms, the nine realms, uh, via the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge. And, of course, uh, in the Marvel movies, they depict Thor. Again, I just saw Love and Thunder the other night. He uses his, uh, it used to be Heimdall with the flaming sword. Okay, it's, it's even in Thor. In the first movie, Heimdall plants his flaming sword into the ground, and it's a, it's a lightning sword, right? And sends people all over the, the cosmos, all over the universe, through this Bifrost, this rainbow bridge. Well, um, in Thor, Love and Thunder, he has a Stormbreaker, the, the axe that he makes in the movie Infinity War, and he uses that to open the Rainbow Bridge and to transport himself and his friends all over the cosmos, all over the, all over the realms of creation, wherever he wants to go. He can go by using this uh, motif, this symbol that is straight out of Norse mythology, linked directly to the Tree of Life. And so when the cherubim and the flaming sword is placed to guard the way to the Tree of Life, that is the quarantine. That is us being cut off here in the fallen world. And Adam and Eve transgressed. Yes, they crossed the boundary. They willingly put themselves into this hell so that they could help 
their creation, their children to not be lost. Otherwise, they would have no children. They'd be lost to Satan. And that does come out if you're willing to just change your perspective a little bit in, in places like Second uh, Nephi chapter 2, where we think that that explains in great detail the, the way we've culturally uh, solidified our narrative in, in the last so many years. But it doesn't necessarily say that. I think you can look at that and see that it might say different things. And so Adam and Eve transgressed so that their, their children would not be lost. Um, and um, had they not, maybe their children would remain in a state of innocence. Maybe they, you know, but they would be subject to the devil for sure. And, um, you know, there's a lot of metaphor in there. You, you can go and read it. Please comment and, and tell me if you think I'm just, uh, just crazy here, <laughs> if you're still listening. But that is how it happened. That's, that's what happened. And uh, I think there was even another council then after Satan rebelled where there was a quick huddle between the gods of light and they said, okay, we expected this. Now we've got to go down and, and the Lord deliberately selected his sent ones, those people who were not children of Adam and Eve, those people that uh, were going to come fight the battle with him and, and sent them down into, into this death world to fight the good fight and to perform the functions that they were supposed to perform to redeem or to help redeem. Of course, the Lord is the great redeemer and he is the main reason why the, the creation can be redeemed. But he, he sent us down here to play our part. And so that begs the question. Now I've almost gone four hours. Uh, but I think it's uh, significant. Because we talked about the disharmony in the cosmos. We've talked about the mutiny. We've talked about the fact that we're at a full-on war, a war footing right now. We've used uh, ancient texts and um, our, our uh, ability to reason and understand. And, of course, using the starting point of, of Joseph Smith and the King Follett discourse, uh, which we realize is very clearly a restoration of ancient themes of eternal progression. We've used that as our bedrock to help us to see how, and again, remember everything I'm talking about, these narratives are, are metaphorical and allegorical. I don't, I'm not saying it exactly happened like any of these things. You have to go out, pray, study, experience, and try to understand what's gone on with the creation but it wasn't Eve's fault and it wasn't God's fault. It's because evil is evil. The reason that this world has the difficulty it has, and if, you, if you're American and if you live in America and have grown up in what I'd call the Pax Americana, the uh, golden age of America, you have no idea how depraved this world can be. Even the poorest people here in America live on the beach in California and get free handouts and they can get new clothes whenever they want. You know, They can get drugs wherever they want. We do not in our American modern Mormon culture have the slightest idea how terrible this world can be. And I, and I perceive that it's possible we're about to find that out. But uh, we've gone through these, these stages of devolution of this great son of the morning, Lucifer, and he is and was great. He still is. He still got us captive here. And uh, we should respect that. So what is our responsibility here now that we find ourselves uh, integral players, important parts, not the most important part. Again, always reserve that spot for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 
But as we find ourselves in this situation, what is our responsibility? And I would just say there are two things that we need to do. Number one, if you are part of the war host on the side of light, you need to do what it says in John chapter 14, verse 15, which is commonly understood to be, if you love me, keep my commandments. And uh, rather than going through all the details, I will just say that a better translation from the Greek of that is, if you love me, if you love the Lord, remember, that's important as per the end of Doctrine and Covenants 76, loving yourself and purifying yourself loving him and purifying yourself before him. If you love the Lord, stand watch, awaiting his instructions. This is a very, the the tip-off here is the word keep. Why doesn't it just say, if you love me, do my commandments? You have two two important words. Tereo, the Greek, Greek verb to stand watch like a sentinel, like a sentry, and entele, instruction and that can be translated as like a a formal paper edict but in the military sense you know these are orders from god to you not commandments in the ten commandments sense this is not the idea that you know oh here's here's my general instructions to everybody that's your commandment you're standing watch waiting for some guy to read you from the book what to do uh, no, you stand watch like a sentinel waiting word from your, your war leader, your commander. And it's like standing out in the dark at night. You know, you've got to listen and be careful and, and watch and wait and be patient. This is, this is a big deal, but that's our responsibility here. We, each of us, and we have talked about this almost ad nauseum on the podcast. You must consider yourself the hero. You must consider yourself the warrior. You must consider yourself to be part of the story. And recognize that God will interact with you. And, and granted, it might be in small and simple ways at first, but that's why it's called the still small voice. You know, it's not, it's not always easy to hear the Lord because of the distraction going on in the, in the information war that you're fully immersed in, the war for your mind, for your heart and soul. It's very clearly, uh, the evil ones want to take over you and keep you captive here like a battery in the movie The Matrix. So stand watch, if you love God, stand watch awaiting his instructions to you personally. And secondly is the thing that really irks me about the movie uh, Love and Thunder. And of course, this showed up in the, the uh, Endgame movie, from the Avengers, Thor, who's supposed to be our Horus figure, is he's a, he's a counterfeit. He's a fallen god. He is nothing like the true god, the the one that we can all have confidence in. He is uh, despondent, distracted. Uh, he is unaware of who he is. He he literally talks about they they, they literally talk about it in the, those terms that he doesn't really know who he is. He's on a journey to try and find out really who he is and what his purpose is. This is a, a hermetic uh, motto or dictum, essentially, the idea that a person must gnothe seauton, know themselves, know thyself is what that means. But you, you must know yourself, and that's part and parcel to uh, what Joseph Smith said in Lecture 3 as, as an ingredient to um, 
gaining faith or exercising faith in God unto life and salvation. It's that you must have an actual knowledge of the, that the course of life you're pursuing is in accordance with his will. That's part of, of course, standing watch, but also part of knowing yourself, knowing why you're here, knowing what your role is and what it is that you're supposed to be doing while you're here. Those ideas, that, that understanding can only come from heaven for you. Now, there will be many willing to tell you what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, there are a lot of good fallback positions like charity, right? <laughs> the, uh, these passages in the scriptures where you start talking about faith generally end with a discussion on charity, Let's look, for example, at Alma chapter 34, which is Amulek speaking right after Alma gives the great discourse on faith. And he says in verse 17 of Alma 34, Therefore may God grant unto you, my brethren, that you may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye would begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. So he's, he's taught them about the true nature of God, and he's saying, talk to God. Like Joseph Smith said, it's the, it's the first principle to know that God is approachable, that you can, that he's a, a person that you can speak to just like you would speak to another, uh, another man or woman. And so he, te- he tells them, cry unto the Lord for mercy and humble yourselves and continue in prayer and cry unto him over your houses and your fields and uh, against the devil uh, for power over your enemies. You know, he just, he talks about this, uh, you know, very, very intimate and direct relationship between an, a person and God. And then he says, um, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all, for after you have done all these things, if you turn away the needy, the naked, and visit not the sick and the afflicted, and in part of your substance, if you have it, to those who stand in need, I say unto you that if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain, and it availeth you nothing. And you are as the hypocrites who deny who do deny the faith. Therefore, if you do not remember to be charitable, you are as the dross which the refiners cast out, it being of no worth, and it's trodden under the foot of men. So, so here we have a, a really important fallback position. Yeah, you can, I can tell you that how you actually do engage in that charitable behavior and when and how is between you and God. But if you don't, you know. It, 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 we, I guess it's a, it's a good rule of thumb that people who are um, true followers of Christ not only have love for the Lord, but they have love for other people and they actually follow through and act like it. So that, I think, encapsulates what our responsibility here is. But your story is going to be as uh, colorful and variable and interesting and complex as the most amazing tapestries woven interwoven by threads of people and and events that that occur in your life and only you and god really are going to be able to see the extent of that and why and how and what and that's just part of the experience here in the in the cosmos in the fallen world the 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 war world the one that uh the one where the loyalty of the the souls of mankind is being tested to see if they want to continue with the captivity and be destroyed or choose liberty and life and get back into the real world. Okay, four hours, and we finally made it to where we're at right now. I wonder what you all think of all of this. 
and if you made it this far, <laughs> kudos. What an attention span. What 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 a level of patience you have. I I'm really curious just to know if this is important or helpful or uh, of interest to the listeners of the Mind Virus podcast. Uh, Bobby totally set us up for this. He left, didn't give me any ideas, and and here we are with me monologuing for a long, long time, which I'm sure everybody expected that would happen at some point. So if you've listened at all, I tend to go off. Well, um, what next? What happens next? Well, anytime somebody gets one of these high-level encounters with the beyond, and we, we talked about that several hours ago, how these uh, sent ones, these very, very important beings came down with the Lord and had a message, uh, a responsibility to, to convey the message, and some of them have these, uh, the at least they relate. I'm, I'm guessing most of them have uh, some sort of experience like this. Uh, they have a responsibility to relate the story and, and a responsibility to tell what they've seen from the heavens. Uh, they often relate essentially three different aspects of what's going on. The, they will tell about the birth or the organization of the cosmos, the cosmogony. They will talk about the uh, titanomachy or theomachy, the war that occurred in the heavens and, and give us an understanding of why we're here in the fallen world. And then they tend to see the nature of the world all in one or sort of a vision of all things or a, a vision of all. They'll be shown the from the beginning to the end what happens. And it's usually described in a cyclical manner Man, maybe that's not the right way to put it. They're, they're describing something that that uh, goes through cycles in a narrative manner, and then they end with, of course, the eschatos, the end times, and that is often talked about in terms of ex- eschatology. Eschatos meaning the very end or the utmost end, and eschatology is the study of the end times. And uh, th- then we get all this apocalyptic... Uh, well, the word apocalypse means unveiling or revelation. And so because of John's vision, because the book of Revelation has both the unveiling of the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the heavens and also a description of the, the end times, then we always associate the word apocalypse with the end times. But really in Greek, apocalypse means unveiling, to unveil, to reveal. That's why the book is titled Revelation in English. In all the other languages, it's apocalypse. Well, the Latin languages. So, and and that's a good clarification I can make as we're leaving here, and hopefully this will be helpful. The book of Revelation is not a chronology, and neither is Isaiah's prophecies. They are exactly what I just described. They see into the heavens. They they get an understanding of, of the creation, and then they tell of what happens in the creation. And uh, the, the seven churches in Asia are representative of the, the levels of the heavens and the people that have come to this world from the heavens. And then uh, John is shown the heavens and he's shown 
what happened in the beginning, the Titanomachy, you know, the, the dragon, um, Michael and the dragon fight, the, the dragon, the stars of the heaven fall, uh, the dragon wants to eat the, the child of the woman. And here we are um, looking at the conditions here in this world. And, that, and people, people totally get amped up about this being um, a chronological discussion because of the, the seven seals and the, and the seven trumpets and all that stuff. There's that uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 77, which says that the, it gives some fairly literal uh, commentary on what the book of Revelation is. But that should just be considered overview and, and very cursory. Uh, the earth, having gone through only 7,000 years of its temporal existence, is uh, sort of misleading. Uh, a thousand years in the ancient texts would be just simply a long age an age right so we have uh, if you're if you're looking at the zodiacal um ages they're usually about 2500 2600 years on average adding up to a total of 26000 years for us to make the transit all the way through the great year of all the zodiacal uh signs so you've got to really start to think like an ancient before you try to apply some of these comments that, uh, you know, got inserted into the Doctrine and Covenants without context about the book of Revelation. It's, it's not a chronology. It's discussing cyclically what happens. The mark of the beast, for example, that's a spiritual thing. Um, it happens cyclically on the earth that it's very typical of those who follow Satan to ostracize those who have the mark of the father uh, th they don't want them involved in their marketplace. And so, uh, again, uh, I'm going over time here, but... <laughs> okay, I was over time two hours ago. But the the verbs in that chapter... Uh, let's see, I'm going to get to Revelation chapter 13 here. In the chapter, we get worried because it says uh, he caused all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell save he had the mark of the beast or the number of his name. Well, in the Greek, the words for buy and sell are number one. To buy is agorazo. That's a verb meaning uh, to go to the agora. The agora is the town center. That's, of course, where commerce was conducted. That's where the temple would be. That's where all the interesting cultural societal things would be and so if you can't frequent the marketplace and it, it does mean to buy also but if you or go shopping but if you can't frequent the marketplace then you're ostracized right and that's what satan's followers do is they tend to ostracize people from the marketplace the other verb for to sell is poleo and it means to exchange barter to sell to conduct business right so the idea, a better translation there would be that uh, no one could go to frequent the town square or frequent the societal center or conduct their business unless they have the name, the mark or the name of the beast. Uh, sorry, it's not the name. It's uh, get back to King James here. Unless they uh, have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So. This is something that has happened throughout history. Always God's followers are being ostracized 
from the marketplace. And always society claims to be following the good God. And I worry that rarely do we have um, a society that really is following God. Otherwise, we'd see more bright Zion-esque spots like in 4th Nephi. And uh, anyway, we're, we're misunderstanding the book of Revelation. And I think if you look at Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's narrative that Nephi puts into, uh, what is it, chapters uh, 12 through, it's 2nd Nephi, chapter 12, yeah. Uh, this is really, I think it's Jacob. No, it's... Uh, we finished the words of Jacob in chapter 11 and then Nephi's like, okay, I'm going to give you more of the words of Isaiah. And of course, both Jacob, Nephi and the Lord in, in third Nephi chapter 23 allude to the idea that his words are important because they have been and they shall be, or they are and they shall be. They're cyclical. They, they, uh, they demonstrate not necessarily historical events, you know, any single historical event, but the nature of the fallen world that we are caught up in, just like the book of Revelation does. And, and I think if you'll look at the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi chapter 20, chapter 12 through 24, is it? And <laughs> Nephi glories in plainness is what McConkie wrote in the heading to chapter 25. I know a lot of people don't think it's plain. That's because we look at it with the wrong perspective. If you look at it with this perspective that, that Nephi is trying to explain to you the role of Christ as the Lord of the war hosts, the Lord of hosts, the, the Redeemer God uh, interceding in, in the events of this creation and showing how cyclically the people reject the light and therefore cause their destruction and therefore at the end God comes and destruction occurs but then it becomes a paradisiacal um, place where all the animals lie down with each other and there's no harm. The, they beat their swords in, or yeah, they beat their swords into plowshares. This is, this is Zion. This is a terrestrial garden esque type of a type of an environment that the Lord presides over and brings the creation back because it is his right. He is the true King and he gave dominion to Adam, not to Satan and Satan wanted dominion and has always been trying to get dominion, and he has taken dominion, but God, uh, our God, came down and uh, reconnected it, made an at-one-ment, and took it over. So he, he conquered death, and he is waiting for the loyalty test to play out. And we can see in a, in a big-picture way how this world... It really is like the Matrix. It's a battleground world, and the, most of the people are unaware. It's, a, it's very much like Plato's Cave, where most of the people are unaware of their captivity. It is a, a prison. To quote Morpheus from the Matrix, he says, The Matrix is everywhere. It's all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo asks, what truth? Morpheus says that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind.
This is the visible world that did not come from the shining things. We've gone full circle back to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me again, in closing, read to you my translation, aided by my son, of course, (laughs) of chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. The belief that Paul is talking about, that he's gone to great lengths to try and explain, this special belief, this faith. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. Or in other words, expecting the actual reality. Simultaneously, the means of finding out things not seen. Because that's the actual reality. For in this, or by faith, the ancients were vouched for. They obtained the, the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. He vouched for them. It was they, they had received the testimony of Jesus. And he expressed his confidence in them through this process of faith. We perceive that through faith, the eons have been organized by God's living voice such that the visible, what we perceive here, has not come into being from the shining things. This is the perfect tense. It's used to describe a completed action which produced results that are still in effect. And so that's why we've translated it the way that we did here. The eons have been organized by God's living voice, and it happened in such a way that the visible, what we're experiencing, has not, did not, and currently is not come into being from the shining things, from the higher heavenly things. It is a fallen world. So I hope this isn't too confusing because remember the narrative that I laid out explained that this world was essentially taken over, mutinied, right? And I believe that is the case, that this world was originally started by the gods of light, but that then it was corrupted by the evil ones in a mutiny. And so therefore they, they participate in creation. And that's why we have all of these stories about them being the creator gods. But the conditions here, the, and of course in the temple ceremony, you or the drama, you have, uh, Lucifer is asked, well, what, what are you doing here? You know, I'm just doing that, which has been done in other worlds. What, what have you got here? A new world patterned after the old one where we used to live, right? So, and, and there are other texts. Uh, let's see if I can remember right off the top of my head. I didn't. I actually just paused the recording and took a look at my notes here for a second. You've got the hypostasis of the archons, sometimes called the reality of the rulers, which explains that the demiurge, the blind god, uh, Samael, that he... Um, that that it was after the pattern of the realms that are above that the demiurge created the world for by starting from the invisible world the visible world was invented that's that's one way to put it but again it's not a shining world what we have here was not born of the shining world what we have is a is a, a bastard child it was a, a creation of the devil it sounds like it was born i i get there's a nuance here Uh, The text called the Apocryphon of John describes in some detail how uh, Yaldabaoth, uh, the name is probably an Aramaic expression, meaning descendant of chaos or son of chaos. Yaldabaoth 
um, he creates uh, his system and his world, which includes the unseen heavens, right? After the pattern of the higher cosmos. So he's created a, a system here that is a counterfeit system, which is intended to trap us. And that's very, very important. And as I pointed out, and I guess we'll end with this, um, the quote from Joseph Smith again about knowledge that is so important that uh, it's knowledge that saves a man because even the unseen world is infected with this this evil. It, it's the the world that we are in includes the visible and the unseen world, the world of spirits, which can either be a paradise or a prison depending on your your state of mind when you leave the world. And that is still under the control of the evil one to some extent and uh, is still cut off from the high heavens. It's, it's still separated from the tree of life by the cherubim with the flaming sword, metaphorically speaking. Hence, Joseph Smith explains that it, a man is saved no faster than he gets knowledge, for if he does not get knowledge, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world, meaning the unseen world that's fallen, because in the harmonious cosmos, we're not subject to this unseen abject evil and, and loss of memory and subject to their control over our, our physical bodies potentially harming us and killing us, right? Or causing other people to kill us. This is uh, important because if we don't get the knowledge, we'll, we can be caught, caught up, brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world as evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power than many men who are on the earth. Hence, it needs revelation to assist us and give us knowledge of the things of God. And of course, those things are hidden from us. So there you have it. I guess I'm going to end this right here with Joseph's words. I think that's a good point to leave it. Of course, please feel free to uh, post comments, questions, ideas, rebuttals, uh, interesting commentary on on the podcast page at mindvirus.show on the web if you'd like to if if you're still listening it would be great if you chime in and say I made it to the end of the cosmology podcast maybe we should do t-shirts for people who make it all the way to the end of the, this podcast I wonder how many t-shirts we'd have to print up maybe three maybe four five I don't know feel free to chime in <laughs> Uh, I really enjoy this discussion. I really en enjoy this material. I think that it is sobering. It's important. Uh, you know, uh, like G.I. Joe says in the uh, public service announcements that they were running in the 80s when I was a kid, knowing is half the battle and you are definitely caught up in a battle. And uh, the great thing to remember here is that you have... I hope, on your side, the Lord, and he is greater than all of them. Those who are uh, with us are greater than those who are against us, and they are clearly superior in terms of um, light energy and power and the ability to save versus the devil's ability to captivate and to kill and to bring down into darkness and destroy. But again, it's your choice. Choose uh, liberty and eternal life or captivity and death. And I guess uh, that's where I'll leave it. Those, those are words wiser than me from Nephi's father, Lehi, in Second Nephi chapter 2. 
I hope you have a great week. I hope you uh, enjoyed this podcast. I hope that it's helpful for you. Take care, everybody.